Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 235. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a special show today, a mega show. We have Writers of the Future 28, the new anthology. We've got two stories from that special book. So this is an extra special show, this one. This is The Writers of the Future, number 28, the anthology. We're playing two stories from this collection, the 2012 Writers of the Future. And we have the winner of that whole competition, L. Ron Hubbard's Presents The Writers of the Future, where, you know, the winner gets $5,000. What a a chance for a a new writer to kind of just be given that kind of money to help, you know, towards a writing. And there is an artist one there as well. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is one of the stories, Contact Authority by William Mitchell. Next is Science News by our JJ Campanella. Then we have The Paradise Aperture by David Carini. This was the story that actually won the overall and, you know, David was very nice enough to get get the big check there as well. And if you go over to the L. Ron Hubbard site, you know, Writers of the Future site, there is the whole video there of the kind of ceremony and everything like that. Well, I've taken, you know, I've just snicked a little bit out of David Carini's, like, acceptance speech, which is just humbling as well. And I'll play that at the end, you know. So I'm, I'm chuffed a bit with these two these two stories. And at the very, very end, we have first chapters as well. The Beauty of Our Weapons. Little sneak into a, a new novel there as well. So that is today's show. Now what I'm going to do, just because this is one mother of a show as well, I'm going to have a little break next week. Yes, we're going to, you know, take a little bit of time out. So we're not going to be on next week. And just purely, you know, like I say, this is a big show. These are big stories. And it would be just nice for you to kind of appreciate them and just enjoy them without having to, you know, oh, there's another show coming on. So the first story we're going to play is Contact Authority by William Mitchell. I'll read out the little bio that William's got, which will be in the the volume 28 of Writers of the Future. William Mitchell was born in 1973, just three months after the last man walked on the moon, which means that in his lifetime, no human has gone more than 400 miles from the surface of the earth. So perhaps it's this slow pace of real-life progress that has made a turn to fiction to see how the continued conquest of space might play out. 
He started writing 10 years ago, finding early success with horror rather than science fiction. More recently, he has returned to science fiction with a scattering of small press publications and a couple of novels underway. Having read a number of writers of the future anthologies and come away feeling as if his imagination has been stretched in 20 different ways at once, he started entering the 2009 achieving a finalist position at his first attempt. This winner's story was his third entry and his first professional sale. He is also a member of the London-based writers group The Tea Party and his day job is in aerospace engineering. He admits to being a rocket scientist when pressed. With a full-time job and a family at home, he has to be quite creative in finding time to write and gets most of it done standing up on the London Underground during the rush hour, typing with his thumbs on his PDA he bought on eBay. His contest-winning story was written that way, plus a few tens of thousands of words before that. If his thumbs give out before PC neural interfaces are developed, he's in trouble. <laughs> That's fantastic. The story is narrated by... Dave Robertson. Dave says he's indulged in creative pursuits his entire life. His CV includes writing Curious George fan fiction at the age of eight, improv theatre at the age of 10, playing trumpet at the age of 12, as well as a theatre degree, creative magazine, cover art, writing audio scripts, designing websites, creating board games, hosting mythological round tables, and generally savouring the sweet drought of expression in all its forms. His years of exploration give him a unique, informed and eloquent perspective on the art of storytelling. Dave co-hosts the Roundtable podcast where writers are invited to workshop their story ideas with authors and editors. You can find out more at Roundtable podcast. I'll put a link on the Dave site. Dave's just done, over on Tales to Terrify, he's just done a fantastic story over there as well. So listen out for Dave. And he is doing a cracking one as well by Hanu Rajiani. So do look out for that coming soon to the sofa. Dave, thank you. Honestly, thank you. I just know Dave got this not long ago. Both this story and the next story. Both narrators have just had this, you know, like within like a few days to get sorted. So hats off, gentlemen. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Contact Authority by William Mitchell. From this distance, the gas giant filled the window. Ten Jupiters worth of roiling hydrogen and helium. A glowing expanse of turbulent orange cloud banks circled by rings of slate-gray ice. The moon system alone could occupy researchers for a generation, over a hundred in total, ranging from the frozen outer bodies to the quartet of inner moons, trading surface matter at a rate of 90,000 tons a day as they flew through a tube of shared volcanic ejecta, making the inner ring glow like a mist of radioactive lava. Kaluza's station was orbiting at half a million miles, away from the worst of the radiation, but with field readings high enough to mask any stray RF emissions it might give out. A good place to hide, and a necessary measure considering why it was here. The optical signature was still an issue, though, so even the running lights and internal illumination had to be dimmed, going dark in every sense. As a result, the planet's reflected glow gave the rec room an insipid orange light as Jared Spiegel sat by the window, killing the downtime between shifts. It's stunning, isn't it? What? Jared turned away from the view, unaware that someone had sat down opposite him. I don't think I ever get tired of looking at it. Do you? 
The girl was young, early twenties or so, wearing the general-purpose fatigues of the green shift workers. One of the researchers, probably. Maybe a biologist or a historian. Yeah, I guess so, he said. You're Jared, aren't you? Jared Spiegel? That's right. You work in remote observation, running the satellite nets? Yeah. Look, can I ask you something? Sure. She got up from the table and moved around next to him, then leant over as if to whisper in his ear. I want you to come with me now. Just get up and follow me, and don't make a sound. Got it? He felt something jabbing into his side, two prongs that could only be a taser. Her tone had changed, too, far from the breezy, chatty air she'd given off at first. He got up slowly, then moved toward the door as she kept in close at his side. The rec room was almost deserted, but still not the place to get into a tussle. But if the hallway was empty... He weighed up his options, thinking back to his operative training, visualizing the moves he could pull to dodge the taser and put her on the ground before she had time to react. Then they got to the door and out into the hall. Two station guards stood there waiting. She acknowledged them with a nod, and they fell into position on either side. Any chance he might have had was now gone. "'Where are you taking me?' he said. "'Commander's office,' was her reply. "'So who the hell are you?' the station commander sat behind his desk, his black military fatigues covered in patches from various postings he'd filled before taking on the unique responsibilities of this job. The name Anderson was splashed across his chest in silver capitals. "'My name is Jared Spiegel, sir.' That much was true. But even as he said it, he knew his cover had been blown. It was the only explanation for what was happening. "'And you came here from mission planning back on Earth, with a tour in deep space routing before that.' Then two weeks ago, you're suddenly drafted in here to drive the remote observation fleet. Is that right? Yes, sir, he lied, while Anderson seemingly nailed him to the back wall with his eyes. Really? Because I have friends in MP and DSR who have never even heard of you, and nor have any of the instructors on that orbital C-3I course you're supposed to have taken. In fact, no one you claim to have known and worked with even recognizes your name. So once again, do you mind telling me just who the hell you are? This mission was a disaster waiting to happen from the start, Jared thought. He hated rush jobs, and this was one of them. No time to build a proper cover, no time to prepare for contingencies. He looked around the room, at the two guards and the woman who'd apprehended him, looking as if all she needed was the slightest excuse and the taser would come out again, and realized his options were getting scarce. It was time to come clean. Can I speak with you alone, Commander? He said. Anything you can say in front of me, you can say in front of them. Not this. You're right that I'm not who I say I am, but if I can show you my ident listing, you might understand. Jared leaned over and put his hand on the desk, palm down, fingers spread. But not his right hand, which coded the biometrics for Jared Spiegel, legitimate crew member, but his left which coded another Jared Spiegel altogether. The commander sat back from his screen, the suspicion in his eyes turning to intrigue. Sal, lieutenants, step outside, please. They went, but slowly, and the woman kept her eyes on Jared right up until she left the room. Make this damn good, Anderson said once they were alone. Sir, my name really is Jared Spiegel, 
but everything else is a cover. I'll get straight to the point. I'm with the office of Alliance Liaison, and we have reason to believe that someone on this station has already contacted the Karanoi and is continuing to do so. The commander almost turned white, his earlier resolve replaced by unmitigated shock. Who? was all he seemed able to say. That's why I'm here, to try and find out. The commander steepled his fingers, thinking quickly, his composure returning. You need to speak damn fast, Mr. Spiegel. Tell me everything. Now. Sixty years had passed since humanity had first made contact with intelligences from beyond Earth. In those intervening years, they had learned a lot about the wider universe they now found themselves in, but not the full picture. They knew of the Alliance, the vast conglomeration of civilizations with millennia of mutual contact behind them. They knew that those civilizations numbered in the hundreds, if not thousands. And they knew that, vast as it was, the Milky Way was not the limit of the Alliance's tenure. Of those races, however, humanity directly encountered just four, including the so-called Sprites, that altogether inappropriate name for those vast sentient replicators named after the bizarre chirps and beeps that appeared when physicists first conquered gravity and stumbled upon the galaxy-wide G-wave communication system that explained why radio frequency SETI had remained fruitless for so long. And they knew that sometimes, when a new civilization was encountered, the Alliance would react not with welcome, but with obliteration. And whatever the closely guarded criteria were for acceptance or oblivion, they knew that 60 years ago, humanity had come within a whisker of being wiped out. So, Mr. Spiegel, why is this the first I'm hearing about a breach in my own damn station? Jared had been excused from Anderson's office for over an hour once he'd told the man what was happening right under his nose. He'd been kept in the outer office, not exactly under arrest, but actively dissuaded from leaving, listening to the muted voices of Anderson and the woman called Sal just beyond. Then, finally, he'd been allowed back in. Sir, you must understand that given the seriousness of this situation, no one can be above suspicion. Ever since we were appointed as contact authority for the Karanoi, we've known that there can be no room for mistakes. We're not sure, but we think that being given the chance to bring another race into the fold so early in our own membership, we are being afforded a great honor by the Alliance. And whatever it was that almost saw us wiped out, it's likely we're still being judged, even now. There had been chaos on Earth when humanity's near eradication was made public. A few full-scale wars, too, as the divide opened up between those who wanted nothing to do with the Alliance and the threat it still posed and those who realized that the clock couldn't be put back, contact couldn't be undone, that Earth was now a part of the interstellar community whether it liked it or not. Decades on, pragmatism had won out, an uneasy acceptance that the Alliance did things for a reason, and one day we'd understand. Now that compliance meant putting another race under the spotlight. Anderson looked down at the displays on his desk, live-feed schematics of the Charon system and the 18 planets that made it up, including the gas giant Charon-E they were currently orbiting and Charon-C, Earth-like in so many ways, whose inhabitants were meant to be getting the surprise of their lives in just three weeks' time. 
Well, this is the situation, he said. I do not appreciate having my authority circumvented on this station, no matter how much suspicion you feel inclined to aim at everyone based here, including apparently me. But I talked to your people just now. And then I called the chiefs back on Earth, and then they called the UN, and guess what? Not only did they back up your story, but I'm supposed to give you everything you want on a plate. The thing is, I'm not going to do that. You can carry on with your investigation, but you won't be doing it alone. Maybe you don't work for me, but Sal does, and she is going to monitor every move you make on this station. Is that understood? Of all possible outcomes, this was probably the least disastrous. Understood, he said. Sal was the head of the commander's troubleshooting staff, Jared found out once he'd talked to her without a taser in her hand. In essence, her job wasn't too far from his own, clamped down on anything that could constitute a foul-up. It seemed to be the default structure for all human activity, now that potential alliance judgment was a feature of every endeavor. Military-style organization, military-style discipline, no tolerance for mistakes. She led him to one of Anderson's briefing rooms, their hastily established base of operations. There, they were due to be joined by the chiefs of the station security division, the analysis division, and the system's support division. But so far, no one else had arrived. As soon as they were inside, Sal shut the door and turned to face Jared. I hope you know what you've done here, she said to him. The commander is under more stress right now than you can imagine. Three years we've been posted here studying the Karanoi. Now we're just three weeks away from breaking cover, and you pull this stunt. If the Alliance even suspect that we are about to screw this up, then we could be history. This station, you, me, the whole human race. Do you understand that? Jared felt himself tensing, ready for an argument. Yes, I do understand. Do you understand that someone on your station may already have broken cover? and might be bringing judgment on us even as we speak? I'm here to stop that, remember? You better hope you're right, she said. The other attendees began to file in at that point, casting curious glances at each other and at Jared and Sal, clearly still in the dark as to why they'd been called. Anderson was last to turn up. He sat everyone down, then took them through what was known so far. Jared saw the same reactions on their faces that he'd seen on Anderson's the reaction turning from horror to disbelief, then ultimately to anger. If someone is talking to them already, it could be disastrous, the security guy said, a man called Benning. You must have some idea who it is. The initial theory was someone in remote observation, Jared said. That's why I was posted there, but I managed to rule that out pretty quickly. Why there, one of the systems guys said. In fact, how do you know about any of this? Because that's our job. Officially, Alliance Liaison's role is to be the interstellar face of Earth, to deal directly with Alliance races. But unofficially, our biggest job is containing screw-ups. We make it our business to monitor everything that happens in off-Earth affairs, including this station. We get copies of the mission logs you send back to Earth, and we have algorithms specifically designed to look for inconsistencies. In this case... Remote observation satellites, which, for the last eight weeks, have been sitting with their high-gain antennas half a degree above ambient temperature, when by all rights, they should have been off altogether. Benning smiled grimly. 
I'd heard that your outfit was more like an intel cell than a diplomatic group. So tell me something, Mr. One Call Away from Alliance Central. I don't work with the speakers, remember. I don't get to actually talk to them. Well, whatever. But answer me this. We get pretty much 98% coverage of all the Karanois communications. If someone here has opened a line of communication to them, we would see them react, even if they didn't respond directly. So where is it? Jared nodded. The question had occurred to him, too. When 21st Century Earth first discovered they weren't alone, there was planet-wide uproar, even before news of their near eradication broke. Not that the Karanois seemed to be the type to exhibit mass hysteria, but news of contact would still have a big effect on them. My guess, he said, message one would have been, keep a lid on this, listen, but don't respond. But you don't know for sure. No, but I'm getting close to finding out. Close, Sal said. You've been fumbling around here for two weeks now, when telling us straight out would have found the answer in days. I know, but I had my orders. Lucky we found you then, because now that you're under our orders, we might actually get somewhere. So, what are we looking for? Jared paused, gathering his thoughts. He hadn't expected to have to explain this to anyone so soon, at least not until he was back on Earth being debriefed by Alliance Liaison. It's not anyone in the remote observation team, I'm pretty sure of that now. I think someone with access to core station systems has installed some agent software to act for them. Every time one of the RO birds was taken over, there'd be a spike in processor activity associated with core comms. Do you have details of when these events happened? Benning said. We could trace all logins, match them up with shift activity and personnel logs, get some idea of who had the opportunity to do this. How quickly can you get on it? Anderson said. Let me get my section heads in here and we can start now. Benning made the call, as did the other chiefs to their teams, prompting an influx of new faces, all initially ignorant of events, all displaying the same shock when told of the situation. They got to work fast, a team of over 15 by now, pulling up logs of computer access and processor activity, tracing back through the control systems of the hijacked satellites, the station processor nodes that could have been set to control them, and finally, the individuals most likely to have had the right kind of access at the right kind of time. Jared looked around at the number of people working the problem and the results they were getting. Sal was right, he thought. He had been just groping around for two weeks, sacrificing progress to maintain cover. But in many ways, this new situation brought concerns of its own. Calusa Station housed almost a thousand people, all working on the preparations for contact, and as the number of people aware of the breach and working to pin it down grew, the probability that the culprit would be tipped off could only increase. Then Jared heard someone call out, Got him! He looked over to the far corner of the room where a group of system profilers were leaning over a display. One of them was pointing to a trace of computer access data. Anderson moved over quickly, Jared and the rest of the room not far behind. Then they saw the name of the person the system had identified as the culprit. Not him, Anderson said. Not Temple. It's Temple, Sal said. Rory Temple, grandson of the man who had made first contact with the Alliance and who had reportedly done whatever it had taken to convince them that humanity was worthy of joining. Anderson sat everyone down. How sure are you? he said to the profilers who had pulled up Temple's name. Ninety percent, one of them said. 
You realize how big a deal this is if we're wrong, Anderson said. This guy's connections make him a very important man. He could have pulled strings to get a job anywhere in interplanetary policy. But he chose this place. Why here, Jared said. It couldn't help but sound suspicious that their new number one suspect had gone to such lengths to be posted here, with status and pay grade a fraction of what he could command elsewhere. He studies languages. He did a lot of work on the Sephira languages when we first encountered them, stuff we'd never have figured out without him. Even if he didn't call in favors to get the exolinguistics job, he'd be a pretty good candidate. And now he's using his place here to screw the mission by breaking cover ahead of the contact date? Sal said. Why? I have a pretty good idea, Benning said. He wants the glory. His grandfather was the first to meet the Sprites, the first to introduce humanity to the Alliance, the one to save our necks. Now, Rory Temple wants to bring in the Karanoi, single-handed, and get his name in the books, too. There were murmurs of agreement around the room. It sounded plausible. I'm not going to haul him in and throw accusations at him if there's any chance he's innocent, Anderson said. We can't take that kind of trouble, not at this stage. Jared could see the position Anderson was in and had a lot of sympathy for the guy. He was the station commander, nominally the sole voice of authority, but he'd just been trumped on his own station twice in succession, first by Jared's alliance liaison status, now by Rory Temple's connections and the ramifications of pointing the finger. Jared realized he had to make the move. Let me talk to him, he said. No, Anderson said, thin-lipped. He's one of my staff. I work out how we deal with him. Commander, we're not sure it's him yet. Look, I've been trained in covert interrogation. I can talk to him under some pretext and know whether he's lying. I have enhancements fitted that let me spot pupil dilation, skin flush, posture changes. I'm like a walking lie detector. It's part of my job. I can tell you if it's him. Anderson sat back, thinking it through. Sal, what do you think? If Spiegel is wrong, then it's he and the Alliance liaison that look bad, not us. Remember, it's not just the embarrassment we're trying to avoid. We run a higher risk by doing nothing. Okay, Anderson said. Do it. Jared's duties while undercover had never taken him to the cultural assessment section. He made his way there with growing apprehension, knowing how much hung on what he was about to attempt. He stopped at one of the research rooms to ask directions and was pointed toward the teaching facility where Rory taught Karanoi languages to the contact teams. When Jared got there, the door was open and Rory was inside addressing a class of 12 contactees. They sat there, lean and clean-cut in their red jumpsuits like pilots at a pre-flight briefing, hanging on every word, knowing that success or failure lay in doing the job right and assimilating every bit of information they were given. Jared hovered outside. No one seemed to have noticed him, so he listened in while Rory took them through the finer details of something called cross-grameme resonance. The class was in its final five minutes, so he waited for them to finish, then went in as Rory was closing down the displays. Rory Temple? Jared strolled in as if they're on some errand, but already he had his implants fired up to record and analyze everything. Yeah, that's right. Rory was a young guy. "'younger than Jared, with curly black hair and a wide, welcoming smile. "'I'm Jared. Hi. Look, do you have a minute? "'I want to ask you something about the stuff you're working on.' "'Sure. My office is just down the hall.' 
Rory started gathering discs and printouts together, clearing the room for whoever would be teaching here next. Jared hesitated. Rory's office might be the worst place to go. People were always harder to read on home ground. But then this classroom was probably familiar territory in itself. And anyway, people were already arriving for the next lesson. He let Rory lead him out and down the hall to the cubicle where he worked. So, what do you want to know? Rory said once they'd arrived. Why you've jeopardized this mission, this station, and the safety of the human race? Jared didn't say. I run the remote observation birds that pick up all RF communications, but resourcing is getting to be an issue, and we might need to prioritize our collects. I was wondering whether there were any particular locations or times of day that give you the best material. To an extent, yes, but it depends on what you're looking for. The southern continents seem to be first with all technical advancements. Certainly their songs were the first to contain explanations for electromagnetism and atomic theory, plus most of the other milestones we've gauged our own development by. But it was a northern song that first showed something resembling general relativity. So take your pick. And if it's their culture you're into, how they communicate and govern themselves, you can take songs from pretty much anywhere. Rory had an image on his wall, taken by a low orbital satellite, back when they still dared to get that close, showing one of the song-sharing rituals in progress. Jared had seen others like it in his brief time on the station, but this one was particularly clear. A gentle sloping meadow of dark green vegetation, with a group of over 200 carinoi clustered together, their quadruped bodies packed so close as to be clamoring over each other, as the song was sung again and again, being added to, refined, and memorized with every repetition. The songs were at the heart of the Karanoi culture, a kind of common knowledge base evolving over time, copied from generation to generation and place to place as the Karanoi's understanding of the world increased. It had even been suggested that the hours-long ritual took them into some kind of shared world space, a place existing only in their minds, but where theories and hypotheses about the world could be formed, developed, and rationalized until finally, when they were done, they would go back to living in lean-to shelters, eating grass and leaves off the ground, while the milestones of physics, chemistry, and biology fell to their relentless accumulation of knowledge. And is it just the songs that you get, or other stuff too, Jared said. Has no one told you this? Rory said. Wow, they do keep you guys green, don't they? Okay, in terms of what you pick up, the majority of it is song lore. But there are plenty of other site-to-site communications too, more mundane stuff like arranging journeys or warning of bad weather. And is it easy to translate? It wasn't at first, but we managed to crack it a year or so ago, Rory said. Their languages are fascinating, their way of communicating so unlike our own. Have you ever seen their speech decoded, seen how it works? No, Jared said. I just collect their transmissions. It's all noise as far as I can tell. Rory smiled. I guess to them, hearing us speak would be just noise. It's not like hearing another language from your own planet, where you can tell something is being said, even if you're not sure what. Jared put on a quizzical look, mainly a way to keep Rory talking, but mixed with genuine interest as to what he'd managed to uncover. Okay, here's how it works, Rory said. He leaned over the keypad, then hit a key to bring the screen back to life. 
There was something else on there when it powered up. Something Jared couldn't see clearly, but which made Rory close the window in a hurry, cursing under his breath. Game Thread, or Game Theater, was all Jared had been able to read. <laughs> Didn't realize that was on there, Rory said, laughing nervously. For Jared, though, it would be yet another problem. Rory couldn't have been the only crew member playing games when they should be working, but being caught out for that minor misdemeanor could well mask the signs of the major one. Rory opened up the program he did want and brought up an audio file. When he set it playing, it sounded like dolphin sounds, but mixed with a low-level buzzing drone. Okay, not much to take from that, is there, he said. But watch this. Then he brought up visually a graphical trace of amplitude and frequency matching the peaks and lulls of the sound itself. He zoomed in, down to the level of hundredths of a second, and the trace began to resolve itself into discrete spikes of noise. Each one of those is a click, Rory said. In isolation, they don't mean much. It's the spacing that counts. Look here. He pointed out a sequence of four clicks, three equally spaced with the fourth farther off to the right. This is the West Coast dialect of continent B, so that means home. He then pointed out other sequences, some of up to ten clicks, with meanings as varied as down and water and closed. Then he zoomed out, the screen becoming a forest of spikes, and hit a couple of keys that caused another four to be highlighted, much wider apart this time. Home again, Jared said. That's right, but covering a tenth of a second, not just a few hundredths. And each of those clicks already forms part of other short-span words. In fact, in any sequence of clicks, you can find whole new levels of meaning by pulling back and looking for patterns at larger and larger scales. And their languages actually use that phenomenon to add grammatical nuances, parallel threads of meaning, evidence and context running alongside every statement. Do you know they find it almost impossible to lie? Their brains must be wired up to process layers of meaning and truth like this. To them, our way of just putting one word after another would be almost incomprehensible. They can't form a coherent meaning without layering it on. Rory seemed to enjoy explaining all this stuff, Jared thought. Certainly enough to make it plausible that he'd chosen this posting out of sheer academic interest and nothing more. Jared had once felt the same way about his old job doing covert analysis of other alliance races' technology. Highly secretive, extremely fruitful, and fascinating to an extent that he'd have done it as a hobby if someone else was paying the bills. Then one day he just hit burnout and couldn't do it anymore. And did you figure all this out yourself? Most of it. It was me who discovered the songs. I even invented the name Karanoi. We'd been calling them Karons for too long. So this whole contact effort is your baby? Yeah, I guess you could say so. He thinks it's his own pet project, Jared thought. He's got a lot to be proud of with what he's done so far. But Benning was right. He wants one better. He wants the glory like his grandfather. Time to put him on the defensive. So what's the point of any of this? Why are you even bothering if we can't even get our heads around it? Rory answered straight, not rising to the bait. The contact team will be using translation packs, and one of my jobs is to program them. But even using them needs a degree of training, almost as much as learning the rudiments of an unfamiliar earth language. 
you can't just talk into the translator and hope that something coherent will come out, much less expect to understand what it gives back to you when they reply. It just doesn't work that way. How did your grandfather and the rest of his crew communicate when they first encountered the Sprites? The Sprites made it easy for them. They'd learned English and figured out how to speak it fluently just from picking up broadcasts from Earth. Pretty much the way you are. The comparison must have reminded Rory of the enormity of what he was doing, because for a second, a sober look took the place of the enthusiasm he'd shown so far. Yeah, I guess so. He'd been caught off guard. Time to start probing. So, if you were given the chance to be the first to talk to them, what would you say? Rory sat back from the desk. I'd probably ask them their hopes, where they see themselves in the cosmos. They know a lot about the universe around them. They've already worked out they're not alone, just as we did before contact took place. They must be giving some thought to how it all works and how they'll fit in. And how do you think they'll fit in? I don't know. They're such a strange race. To have attained that level of development and awareness without any of the trappings of technological civilization, like cities and transport networks and heavy industry, I hope there's a place for them. And how do you think they'll take it when we make contact and they realize we're here? They'll celebrate, I'm pretty sure of it. Their songs have always contained an awareness of plurality, of not being alone. It will be a culture shock for them, but the mere fact that they're not alone won't be a surprise. And are you looking forward to that day? Very much so. That's why I'm here. Jared watched Rory's expression and other nonverbal cues, looking for any signs of lying or deceit. There was none. He'd asked four questions in a row where the culprit couldn't do anything but lie. And yet from Rory, he'd gotten nothing. Jared had heard all he needed. It was time to go. As he got up to leave, one final question occurred to him. So what was he talking about? Jared said, pointing to the trace still frozen on the screen. The Karanoi who was talking then. Nothing much, Rory said. Just a way of making houses watertight. A way of finding leaks, Jared thought. Maybe we should be asking him for help. It wasn't him, Jared said. He was back in Anderson's office, having stopped at the rec room to stare at cold coffee and make sure of what he was about to say. Are you sure? What did you ask him? I've sent you a transcript of what we discussed. You'll see where the giveaways would have been. But I got nothing. Could he have been trained? Anderson said. People can be taught, can't they, to beat truth tests? It had occurred to Jared, but was unlikely. Only if he's trained as an operative. Even I would struggle to come through a test like that with a clean score. A test like that, Sal said. She'd opened the transcript to Anderson's screen and was skimming through it. You didn't press him too hard from what I can see here. No, but I was sitting opposite him in a quiet room with no other distractions. I had every deceit cue covered short of sticking a thermometer up his butt. If he was lying, I'd have known. Well, I don't care what you think you know. You started all this. You are supposed to be able to find this stuff out. She was finger-jabbing him as she spoke, leaning forward to punctuate each you with a prod in his face. So why are you not able to do that? Sal, that will do, Anderson said. She sat back heavily, still glowering at Jared. 
Then Anderson faced him, too. So, what do we do now? What they did was block off all the avenues that had been used to hijack the remote observation satellites. Having focused initially on trying to find the culprit, now they concentrated on the nature of the breach, how the messages had been transmitted, and how to stop them in the future. Whoever had done it had covered up well. Nothing was left of whatever they'd sent, or the software that had passed those messages to the satellites. But within a day, the gaps in system security had been plugged. Whoever it was, they wouldn't be doing it again. As for Jared himself, his placement had been a ruse from the start, and now even that cover was gone. However, he still had his Alliance liaison credentials, still had the run of the station, and still had a job to do. Anderson had put the hunt for the culprit in Benning's hands, him and his security team, and with Jared still overseeing the operation, that was where he spent most of his time. Leads, however, were scarce. Beyond the system trace that had pointed to Rory Temple in the first place, there was little to go on. The commander's thinking of bringing Temple in, Benning said, three days after Rory had been implicated. He and Jared were in Benning's office, reviewing the evidence to date. He's going to talk to him directly. What does he plan on doing, Jared said, asking straight out if it was him or letting Sal loose on him. Benning laughed. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in the room for that session. Jared smiled back. Benning seemed a good guy to work with, stocky, middle-aged and graying, but level-headed and quick-thinking with a practical approach to things, unlike other more hot-headed members of the crew. So what is it with Sal? What do you think her problem is? She's loyal to Anderson, and that's really all it is. Anything that poses a threat to the mission is a threat to him, and she can be pretty zealous in dealing with it. Overzealous, some might say. Jared wondered if Anderson appreciated Sal's overprotective approach, or just tolerated it. What do you think Anderson will do now? I don't know. To be honest, I think he's hoping that now the breach is plugged, this problem will just go away. That once the Karanoi officially know we're here, whatever went before won't matter. I wouldn't be so hopeful myself. Neither would I. I'm glad I'm not in his shoes, you know. He's got ultimate responsibility for every decision on this mission. The choice of the landing site, the procedure for breaking cover, the contingencies if contact goes badly. Then, as if that weren't enough, first we find out we might have got the tech level wrong, and then this breach happens. What do you mean we got their tech level wrong? Benning laughed. <laughs> you mean there's something Alliance Liaison doesn't know first? That makes a change. It's the Karanoi space program. You know we thought we knew how they'd done it. Jared nodded. It was yet another technological miracle the Karanoi had cooked up in between song sessions and leaf eating. Their own space program, their own Voyagers and Cassinis spreading through the system, launched on glorified black powder rockets, processing with analog valves that predated even the transistor era, but nonetheless sending a steady stream of high-quality data on the plethora of giants and supergiants that made up the Charon system. They also had first-generation orbital telescopes, Hubbles and Webbs, with what the Technological Assessments Branch had concluded to be impressive capabilities for something so crude, the reason why Kalusa Station had to be concealed so carefully. Go on, Jared said, intrigued. We're picking up G-wave emissions in the outer system. 
They're difficult to pin down. It's not like a radio source that you can just focus a receiver onto, but some of them seem to be coming from the same direction as their outbound probes. So what do we think it is, he said. Maybe their theoretical understanding of gravity isn't so theoretical after all. You mean they've had gravity drives all along and used them on their probes? First-generation low-thrust devices for course correction? It's been suggested. That didn't seem plausible to Jared. He had enough trouble equating the Karanoi's existing achievements to their everyday way of life, the way they pulled metal ore out of the ground, mixed propellants and fuel, invented and built electronic controllers, all so they could put a one-off spacecraft into operation, then go back to living a life that, on Earth, would have predated the agricultural revolution. But then again, the Alliance didn't initiate contact unless a race had reached a certain level, where space exploration had been demonstrated, physics was encountering the territory beyond relativity, and the full-blown manipulation of gravity and unconstrained access to space were only a matter of time. Are you seeing all this on the Omni-G? Some, Benning said, plus some A-vector ghosting on the high gain. It's faint, though. Can I see what it looks like? Sure, if it'll mean anything to you. It will do, Jared said. Benning had a better-than-average appreciation for the principles underpinning gravity control, but Jared used to work with this stuff every day. Benning brought up the relevant files, and Jared scrolled through to the graphs of what Kaluza's G-wave detectors had found. A-vector modulation at 850 kilohertz, he read out loud. Localized stress tensor divergence in dimensions 4 and 5? This isn't Karanoi. Then what is it? Jared thought back to his old job and the covert G-wave measurements that were taken whenever Alliance ships visited Earth or encountered human vessels, all so that Earth could see how far in advance the Alliance races really were. The endeavor was dangerous in diplomatic terms, but invaluable in other ways, as Sprite, Sephorin, Tesselin, and garrison ships unwittingly yielded their secrets. Sometimes, however, when particularly auspicious or politically sensitive visits were in progress, something else would show up, too. This is Alliance. It's the Sprites, but not their regular cruisers. They have some kind of special unit, ships they keep at a distance, hovering in the outer system. So they're hiding from us, while we hide from the Karanoi? That's just what we need with a breach on our hands, them watching over our shoulders. Something made Jared wonder whether watching was all they were there to do. Three weeks passed with no more breaches, but no more sign of who had been responsible in the first place. Then, finally, contact day itself came. The transfer deck to the shuttle was barely big enough for the contact team, let alone anyone else but any room with an outside view was considered fair game by those not on shift or those on non-essential duties who wanted to see the departure for themselves. Anderson himself was part of the team. There had been debates about whether it was right for the commander to take part in the first landing, but the risk was considered small, and it seemed fitting that he should go. The rest of the team was an assortment of biological, cultural, and scientific researchers chosen by a committee back on Earth to share the honor of first contact. There was a speech, by Anderson, relayed across the station video link, made up of his own words marking the event, and messages from heads of state back on Earth. Jared was watching from the rec room, 
angled back from the sunward side of the station as were most habitable sections, but with enough of a view to show the shuttle when it eventually departed. Then the display showed Anderson and the rest of the contact team climbing into the craft, wearing the same red jumpsuits that had become their uniform, him in his commander's black. Then the shuttle undocked and silently moved away from the station until its grav drive was powered up, making it recede into the distance at what would have felt like 15 Gs if the gravity on board hadn't been compensated. Within seconds, it was lost to the naked eye, but the station's long-range sensors kept track of it, relaying the tiny image through the station. The spectators dispersed soon after that, and Jared went, too, back to his cabin. He checked his watch. In just four hours' time, the shuttle would arrive. Then the first step in the carefully choreographed sequence of events would take place, a radio message on the same frequency the Karanoi used for long-distance messaging, with an explanation of who the humans were and why they were here, then a signal of their intent to land. There would be an opportunity to reply, and the opportunity to say no if the Karanoi so wished. Eventual contact was inevitable, but anything to avoid looking like an invading army could only be a good thing. For the same reason, Kalusa Station would stay hidden, for a few days at least, along with all the other remote probes scattered through the system, though moving the whole operation to Charon Sea orbit was always the eventual aim. Then, once the shuttle had made landfall, the first meeting would take place. That initial broadcast, though, Corey Temple himself had written it, drawing on the cultural and linguistic knowledge that he understood better than anyone. In a way, he already was the spearhead of the contact effort, and the record would show it. So why would he risk so much to get his name in the history books illegally? It just didn't make sense. Jared lay down on his bunk and closed his eyes, thinking through the problem. A question had kept coming back to him all through the hunt for the culprit, a question that no one else had ever had time to dwell on when the evidence concerning the breach itself took priority. What had those messages contained? What had Rory, or whoever it was, said to them? Had the Karanoi really received messages from above and not reacted at all? Or was the evidence there, in the songs that used to filter from tribe to tribe, but nowadays flowed back and forth over the planet's surface like a web of self-perpetuating knowledge? Jared got up and opened a terminal, linking to the internal feed of recent news and discoveries. There was a group page belonging to the decoding team, a kind of repository of quick-look reports on all Karanoi communications that the technical and cultural research teams could browse and call up the full recordings if they wanted. He scanned through the reports for the last eight weeks, the approximate duration of the breach. Northern Hemisphere songs were showing an increased proportion of fictional material, one report said, their own stories and legends playing a big role in a way that wasn't true for other regions. Then there was a reference to one of the Continent A settlements, playing with new ideas for collecting water in dry seasons, encouraging the growth of plants that collected moisture under their leaves. Then there was a tribe on the west coast of Continent B, the readout showed, who had started making rapid advances in the mathematical analysis of competitions and strategies for winning them. Jared stopped, wondering why that last part had stood out. He checked the date on the posting, just one week ago. Then he looked back in the archive of postings, searching for anything on the same or related subjects. There was nothing. He stopped, 
thinking back to his conversation with Rory Temple, running through everything he'd seen and heard, justifying to himself why this might be significant. Then he called the number given for the decoding group and got through to one of their researchers. Hi, I've just seen the summary for signal 2-DK-2462, he said, once he'd identified himself. His heart was pounding with the realization trying to be born in his mind, and it was hard to keep his voice level. That reference to their mathematics and analysis of competitive behavior, have you ever seen that come up in any other songs or communications? No, there's no sign of it here, the woman said when she'd checked her records. Nothing before a week ago? No. Jared thought back to that chat with Rory three full weeks ago, concentrating not on Rory himself, but on what he'd tried to hide on his screen, that window that had looked like game theater but which the recording in Jared's implants now showed to be something altogether different. How about other ways of phrasing it, like tactical strategies or competitive analysis or uh, game theory? She checked again. Nothing, she said. What about other tribes or other regions? It's spread to a few other tribes since then, but the signal you saw seems to be the origin. Beyond that, it's as if it came out of nowhere. Jared was out of the door and running to Benning's office before he'd even had time to break off the call. Benning was sitting at his desk, halfway through reading the dailies that his staff had put out. I know who it was, Jared said. It was Rory Temple all along. How do you know? Jared told him everything, up to and including how Rory had information on his Karanoi analysis system three weeks ago that didn't show up in Karanoi communications until two weeks later. You think this is what he's sending? Benning said. Why this? Why is he giving them math lessons? You want answers to that? I say we go and ask him. Where is he now? Benning still didn't seem convinced but he called up Rory's details to see the last access point he'd swiped through. The record showed him being on a maintenance deck toward the sunward side of the station. It was far from his usual place of work. "'What in the hell is he doing there?' Benning said. They went to the area indicated in the records, up at the narrow end of the spindle-shaped station, not running, but still moving with urgency." The area they ended up in was right under the array of antennas and dishes that were clustered on the sun-facing point of the station. There they slowed, moving quietly, knowing even before they located him that whatever Rory was doing, he wouldn't want to be found. The deck was like a circular corridor, matching the sixty-foot diameter of this narrowest point of the station. And they found Rory in an alcove on the outer side, kneeling down with his back to them, the alcove contained ducting and cables running floor to ceiling, presumably leading from one of the antenna arrays on the outer hull, and Rory had plugged a portable Omni into one of the monitoring units and was uploading something to the transmitter. "'Rory, whatever you're doing, stop,' Jared said. He jumped half out of his skin, almost falling over in his haste to get up and turn around. His eyes darted between Jared and Benning. Then he backed against the wall." deflated, as he realized he couldn't get out. "'You mustn't stop it,' he said. "'There's too much at stake.' "'What are you doing?' Benning said, heading over to the Omni. He was about to unplug it when Rory ran over, pushed him away, then stepped back with his hands up. 
Sorry, you can't do that. Please, you've got to listen. Jared's detectors, tuned for their usual role of spotting untruths, were now screaming one thing at him. Rory was sincere and was doing what he was doing for a reason he believed in so strongly he didn't care what happened to him as long as he could continue. This wasn't someone out to steal glory. Benning, wait a minute, Jared said. Rory, tell me what's going on here. I promise I'm listening. It's the Karanoi, he said. I've got to get a message to them. We know you've already sent them several. But why? What have you been telling them? How not to get themselves exterminated, that's what. What the hell do you mean, Benning said. It's the alliance and the judgment they pass on new races. My grandfather knew, don't you realize? He knew what almost happened to us and why. And guess what? Those poor bastards down on Karen Sea are heading for the same fate. So you tip them off? Yes, but not in the way you think. I tapped into their songs, the ones they share between continents, and added the elements of the knowledge they'll need to survive. What, game theory? Jared said. Corey blanched, his eyes widening. How do you know about that? It's starting to turn up in their songs. The intercepts are showing it. And now that they know we're here, all preparations for contact have been wasted, Benning said. No, it's not like that. I hid the information in their songs. They don't know it's from outside. If they ever try to trace it back, it will look like it came out of nowhere. But right now, every tribe thinks it must be one of the other tribes that started it. So that's how he beat the lie test, Jared thought. He was telling the truth when he said actual contact was still to come. But why game theory? How is that meant to save them? Rory paused, as if collecting his thoughts on a subject he never expected to have to explain. The Alliance destroys races that it thinks might be a threat to it. It's no coincidence that contact always occurs just when a race discovers G-wave tech and starts to control gravity. It's the point of no return when a race can spread to the stars and exert an influence over what it finds there. But there's another discovery just beyond gravity control, something even more profound. The way my grandfather described it, it's like a way of violating causality, uh, a limited form of time travel where you can make effect happen before cause, and it brings massive power, enough to make you think you could defeat the whole alliance. But you'd be wrong. That's where game theory comes in. In single-play, cooperate or betray games, defectors always win. It's like the prisoner's dilemma. It's been known for years. If you play time after time and keep score, it's the strategy that determines the winner. But if you can loop back within the game and time is no longer sequential, it's always the instigator who loses. It's like a fundamental principle. And the Alliance have a name for races who haven't figured it out. They call them naives. And whenever a naive race discovers what causality violation can buy them, they always end up using it, no matter how cooperative they might have seemed to begin with. They end up losing. Non-sequential game theory ensures it. But they do untold damage in the process. That's why the Alliance does this. That's why contact is made and judgment is applied. Any race liable to make trouble can't just be contained or left to its own devices. It's make or break. Jared had more questions than he could count. 
How could the Alliance be so sure that all naive races would cause trouble? Why not just tell each new race why it was pointless? And why not contain them rather than wipe them out altogether? But right now, a more immediate question had to be answered. If the Karanoi are already lined up for this, why were we given the job of bringing them in? What's our part in all this? To start with, one of our jobs was to find out whether they are naives or not, even though we didn't know we were doing it. Check the things the Alliance want us to report on, like the Karanoi's technical and mathematical development. Game theory is in there. It's just not obvious. But this is the thing. We're being tested, too. Our Alliance membership is hanging by a thread and always has been. The people who think we're still being judged, they're right. And this is the test we've been given, to see how we react when the race we're reaching out to is themselves targeted for elimination. So now they knew the criterion for destruction, Jared thought. There have been countless theories over the last 60 years as to why mankind was nearly eliminated, most of them immediately discounted. It wasn't because humans were a militarized race, the favorite theory in the early years. For instance, Sephoran starships packed a firepower that would dwarf the whole world's nuclear arsenal. It wasn't because humanity had damaged their world's ecology or wiped out whole species. At least one alliance race didn't even inhabit their home world anymore, thanks to the effects of their industrial advancement. Instead, it was this. Some obscure bit of mathematics that could relegate a race to extinction just by its absence from their textbooks. Jared had felt frustration before at mankind's lowly position among races that held power of life and death and had deigned to keep humanity ignorant too. Now this revelation made him angry. Is that it? That's why we nearly died? Rory just nodded. But if you knew this from your grandfather, why didn't you say anything? We could have known what we were getting into from the start. At our stage of membership, just knowing the criteria for destruction is enough to ensure destruction. The Alliance want to see us demonstrate truthfully that we're worthy of joining, not just see us showing them what they want to see. It's the same for the Karanoi. I had to hide the knowledge in their songs, make it look like they worked it out themselves. The bastards. The bastard alien freaks making us jump through hoops in games we're not even allowed to know the rules to. Jared worked for the same organization that employed the speakers, those humans trusted with managing the direct contact with Earth's sponsor race, the Sprites. So by all rights, he should have been all in favor of Alliance membership. But he'd joined up on the rebound from his old job, and whereas there he'd been using Earth's membership for Earth's benefit, now he wasn't really sure whose interests he was serving. And all through his time there, he'd had a suspicion that there was something deeply wrong with the position humanity had been put in, the continued life-or-death judgment, just by making themselves known to other races. That's why the Alliance are here, he said. They're here to put the extermination order into practice. They're here, Rory said. Yes. Jared told him about the G-Wave intercepts, the now unmistakable signs of sprite ships hanging back in the outer system. That's them, Rory said. My grandfather talked about special ships they use, some kind of elimination unit with planet-busting weapons. 
Aren't the Karanois safe now? You've put the knowledge into their songs. Not enough, though. I never got past the basics. I even had to teach them what conflict is. The idea is so alien to them. Then I lost contact. That was us, Jared said. We cut the feeds to the satellites. But are the Karanois really going to be wiped out? How can a race turn bad if they have to have the very concept of conflict explained to them? I don't know. All I know is what my grandfather was told. The Alliance thinks that races like that are the most dangerous of all. So what options do we have? Options, Benning said. We came here to arrest this guy. Now you're asking him about options? It was true, Jared thought. But now that he knew the truth, he couldn't do anything else. Yes, we can't just do nothing and let an innocent race be exterminated. We need to get this message to Anderson, Benning said still unsure about whether they were doing the right thing. We may not have time, Jared said. The contact team shuttle is in radio silence all the way in. Even their receivers are off. Rory, if we can arrange for you to use the station's transmitters, can you get the rest of the information into the Karanoi songs in time? I don't think so. I was trying just now, but it's probably too late. Wait, Benning said. We're overstepping the mark here. Even if the kind of intervention he was attempting is right, it's not our remit to... But in- we do not have time! Rory was shouting now, desperation showing through. Once contact is made, they're done for! Their dealings with us and the rest of the Alliance will only escalate, and there will be no way I can give them this knowledge and pretend it's always been there. We have to act now! But what can we do? Jared said. Rory hesitated. A possibility had clearly occurred to him, but he seemed reticent to share it. I have a song fragment, already scripted, that gives the full knowledge in one go, he said eventually. But it's too late to be subtle. Trying to slip it into their emissary transmissions is too slow. The stuff I send doesn't always get picked up, and I have to resend each stage unless I'm sure it's sunk in. It's taken me months just to get this far. To guarantee success, we'd have to go there and feed it into a song directly. I mean, find a song ritual in progress and go to Caron C in person ahead of the official contact event. Benning shook his head. Absolutely out of the question, he said. If you think you're going to upstage this whole effort on your own, then you think again. Jared knew the next move was in his hands. Though by using his position in a way Alliance liaison would never sanction, he would be throwing his career and possibly his freedom away. (sighs) As an agent of the Office of Alliance Liaison, I have the authority to requisition any equipment or personnel on this station, he said. Rory, you're going to come with me, and we're going to take a shuttle and go down to the planet. No way, Benning said. I can't allow that. Benning was a reasonable man, and Jared felt bad coercing him into acting illegally. But Jared had the will and the authority to act. This is now OAL business. You know what that means. Benning seemed torn between further protest and giving in to Jared's authority. You'll need access codes to the shuttle, he said, bowing to the inevitable. The commander would normally hold those. He's deputized Sal in his absence. For the first time since reaching his decision, Jared hesitated. She's going to be trouble, he said. Is there any way around it? You can't get off this station without getting past her. 
then that's what we have to do. A figure appeared in the doorway. And just how do you plan on doing that? It was Sal herself. On a station where anyone could be tracked through any access point, it should have been no wonder that Anderson's designated troubleshooter would find them. How much did you hear? Jared said. Enough to get a squad of guards up here and have you taken in? And him too, she added, indicating Rory. No, this is too important. If you heard what's going to happen down there, then you have to help us. She shook her head. No way. I've wanted to do this for a long time. Then she reached into her belt, where her taser was kept. Jared had received full operative training when he joined OAL as a field agent. As a roving troubleshooter, with the success or failure of Earth's interplanetary relations in his hands, he had to be prepared for any situation. And though he'd never had a real-life physical fight since he was ten years old, the operative combat training and implant-boosted reflexes were there nonetheless, ready to come to the fore when needed. He found himself running at her before he even knew what he was doing. She went for the taser, taking aim in slow motion compared to the speed Jared was moving, then fired early, too early for the darts to fly true. He dodged them, then turned his shoulder toward her and barged her to the side. He only intended to push her off balance and disarm her, but as she lost her footing, she stumbled against the doorway and hit the back of her head on the sheet steel floor. Damn, Benning said, running over to her. He checked her pulse, then lifted her eyelids to look at her eyes. She's alive. How are we going to get the codes now, Rory said. I saw a maintenance office on the way here, one level down, Jared said. We can drag her down there and use her palm print on one of the terminals. Are you serious? Benning said, deathly pale. Yes, and you're going to help me. Benning was in a cold sweat as he helped Jared move Sal's unconscious body, but he did as he was told. Rory stepped in to help too, maneuvering her down a stairway and into the empty office. Then Jared activated the terminal, holding her right hand to the reader as he logged in under her name. You know how these files are laid out, he said to Benning. You find the codes. Benning complied, copying the crucial information to his own storage key. Then Jared pulled four chairs together and laid Sal out on them. She wasn't bleeding or swelling, but showed no signs of moving either. We'll call the med bay once we're in the shuttle. Come on, let's do this. Jared looked back as Kalusa's station receded behind them its needle-like profile all but invisible when looking down its central axis. Behind it, the bulk of Charon E sat, its vast ring system tilted out of the orbital plane, casting a hundred parabolic shadows over its surface. The shuttle pulled away from Kalusa to a distance of five kilometers, then its grav drives activated, giving it the same 15G acceleration that had taken the contact team down to the inner system. It was the fastest they could get there, but as the contact team were destined to spend hours in high orbit before landing, they still had hopes of beating them to the planet's surface. Once the acceleration was underway, Jared stepped away from the window and went over to where Rory was reprogramming the Omni, translating the song fragments he'd formulated into as many dialects as possible so they could land wherever they needed and deliver the message without delay. Two hours later, the midway point of the journey was reached, and the shuttle began decelerating. Another two hours later, they were there. 
Huron Sea was so like Earth. The way its blue, brown, and green surface lay blanketed in white clouds. The way the light of its parent sun shone off its oceans like a blaze of white fire. Only the shapes of the land masses betrayed the truth. The two main continents running north to south, connecting the two hemispheres like elongated dumbbells, with the three smaller continents sitting between them. And above the planet's horizon hung its only moon, Carpathia, as cratered and airless as Earth's moon, but almost golden in color. They entered an orbit 200 miles above the surface, with all radio sources and illumination deactivated. There was still a chance that they would be detected, though. The contact team shuttle was orbiting 900 miles higher, and even though its radar was off, it still had sensors that might pick them up as it scanned for the Karanoi's replies to the welcome message. And the Karanoi themselves, watching the heavens just as keenly, might also spot a new arrival within hours of it orbiting their planet. Jared and Rory scanned the planet from above, tuning into frequencies the Karanoi used to spread their songs across the globe. What they wanted was a song ritual in progress, preferably only just begun. It took 20 minutes before Rory announced that he'd found one. That's it, he said. Continent C, Northern Peninsula. Not ideal, but it's the best we have. Why is it not ideal, Benning said. This area doesn't breed intellectual heavyweights, Rory said. It'll look weird to the Karanoi that this group made the breakthrough, but it'll have to do. They began their descent, shedding orbital velocity fast, preparing for aerodynamic flight as they dropped into the upper atmosphere. They'd lost too much speed to heat up appreciably. No old-style re-entries, now gravity itself had been harnessed. But the sound of the supersonic airflow rushing over the airframe whistled into the cabin like a distant gale. Then, as they got lower, they turned off to the side, toward the source of the emissions. The sky around them was pastel blue, Cloud banks like strings of cotton balls dividing the air into layers of temperature and humidity, with a mottled landscape of green and brown below them. Any temperate zone on Earth could have looked like this. Then they went low, maneuvering around any known concentrations of population, descending until the treetops looked close enough to touch. The canopies were slightly too dark, too angular in shape to be earthly. For only at 20 meters altitude did the planet start to look like somewhere other than home. Then they encountered a series of undulating ridges with broad valleys between them. In one of them, they stopped as Benning brought them to a hover just above ground level, checking the map display. This valley leads to the sea, he said. According to this, they're on the coast a few miles up. He took them north, following the valley floor as the ridges to either side petered out leaving them on a broad coastal plain. The land met the sea in a series of rocky ledges, and it was on one of these that the Karanoi had gathered. They could see the Karanoi not just huddled together, but piled on top of one another in a heaped congregation twenty meters long and three high, standing on each other's shoulders and flanks like an irregular framework of limbs and torsos. Benning landed them a few hundred meters inland, then they quickly gathered up everything they'd need, including Rory's Omni and the audio files it contained. Then they opened the shuttle's rear hatch and stepped out onto the surface of the planet. The smell was what Jared noticed first. Smells of sea spray and salt and ozone, mixed with odors of cut grass and pine sap that seemed to mix in different ways as he turned his head. 
The air was cold, the light fading, and it felt like an autumn day's twilight on a chilly seashore back where he'd grown up in Maine. He could hear the sea hitting the rocks, the wind blowing off the water, but most of all, he could hear the carinoi themselves, that low droning sound pulsing and fluctuating, interspersed with chirps and whistles as whole volumes of information passed between them. Come on, Rory said, dashing around to the front of the shuttle, then onward to the carinoi gathering. He ran over to them, then stopped just short of the closest ones. Jared ran after him and stopped alongside. The carinoi were close enough to touch, every mark of their mottled white bodies visible. But locked into their song, trancing, they were completely unaware of their new visitors. It felt like sneaking up on someone in their sleep. Amazing, Rory said under his breath, then reached out and gently touched the closest one. First contact. In this case, literally. Right. Let's get this started. Have they reached the right bit of the song? Jared said. It doesn't work that way. They don't separate out the subjects like that. The songs are more like audio holograms. As long as we got here early enough, we can pipe the information in and give them time to digest it. He opened up the Omni and selected the song files for this dialect. Then he set them playing, adding his contribution to the close harmony rendition of an entire race's knowledge. A couple of the nearest Karanoi shifted their posture in response to the new sound, as if trying to locate it, make out what it said. Is it working? Jared said. I don't know. Maybe. Give it time. As Rory set his plan in motion, Jared looked around the Karanoi settlement. The shelters themselves were further inland, open-sided frameworks roofed with twigs and moss. Alongside them was an emissary tower, a radio antenna fed from probably the simplest transmitter imaginable, named after the emissaries who used to carry songs from tribe to tribe, until one day, a song originating somewhere in the south provided the crucial information on how putting copper and iron and lodestone together in just the right way could open up long-distance communication and relegate traveling emissaries to history. Then he looked back at where Rory was monitoring the output from the Omni. Could it really be this easy, he thought? Just a case of pumping in the information, then getting back into the shuttle and scurrying back to Calusa Station? No. There would be more to it, even if the plan worked. Explaining to Anderson why they'd upstaged his contact effort. Explaining what he'd done to Sal. Explaining to Alliance Liaison why he'd pulled rank on the Calusa staff in a way which they would never have endorsed. Which defied the very alliance they were at pains to placate. The mission might be done, but the storm was only beginning. Then Benning emerged from the shuttle and ran over. There's something coming this way, he said. The contact team shuttle landed a hundred meters or so from their own. Then the hatch opened, and Anderson came out. They could tell even before he stormed over that he was furious. He stopped short and looked from Jared to Rory to Benning and back again, practically on fire with rage. Talk! Now! Jared stepped forward and gave him the story. By the time he finished, Anderson had barely even started to calm down. He looked to Benning. Is all this true? Benning nodded. We only have Rory Temple's word for it, but it appears to be the case. Anderson stepped back, 
steepling his fingers as he always did when digesting difficult news. Jared could see the veins standing out in the man's neck and head, but he seemed to be taking it all rationally, pulling himself back from the brink of meltdown. Those ships in the outer system are Alliance, he said. One of them entered Charon Sea orbit half an hour ago. We switched on our receivers as soon as we saw it and heard a system-wide broadcast to all human vessels, including, as they put it, both landing craft. You'll understand our concern as to who the other one might have been. That's when we started scanning and saw you three down here. Why did they contact you? Jared said. Anderson looked back at him, a coldness in his eyes. It was a warning to clear the planet's surface. They're going to blow the place. No, they can't! It was Rory, stepping forward to face Anderson. Why are they doing that, Jared said. Did something go wrong at the contact site? We never got that far, Anderson said. We sent the broadcast, we were scanning for a response, and then the Alliance appeared. Some kind of sprite ship, something we've never seen before. And right now, I will need a hell of a lot of persuasion to believe that your intervention hasn't caused this. I think they figured out what you're doing, and this is their response. Jared looked over at where Rory's song was still playing out into the Karanoi gathering. Could the Alliance have been watching that closely all this time? They were millennia ahead, technologically, but not clairvoyant. I don't think that's true. The Alliance are acting because they know the Karanoi are naives, and they only know that because they've reviewed our research reports. We've given them three years of data and analysis, and unwittingly incriminated the Karanoi in the process, but that doesn't have to be the full picture. You mean... You think we can still fix this? Rory said. He was almost shaking with the enormity of what he'd started, clearly out of his depth now that Anderson, the OAL, and the whole alliance were involved. Maybe, Jared said, but not like before. You've planted the seed of the theory in the Karanoi's minds, but we don't have time to let it take root on its own anymore. We need to tell the alliance straight out why the Karanoi are suddenly worth saving. And reveal that we know what the Alliance are looking for? Anderson said. Remember, we're being judged, too, if Mr. Temple's theory is correct. If we step out of line, we're next. In that case, we think up some way of pointing them in the right direction. Something with plausible deniability. What if you're wrong? Anderson said. What if by doing this you only provoke them? What would you rather do? Leave the Karanoi to be massacred, knowing that you could have helped them? Through his brief time on the station, one thing had come through loud and clear to Jared. For some people, including, he suspected, Anderson, the mission had become more than just a research project. They got to know the Karanoi so well, albeit from a distance, that there was now an emotional stake in contacting them. Working the last three years, only to see them wiped out, would be more than just a waste of research time. Fine. Your way, Anderson said. But whatever we do next, we do it from orbit. I'm not going to wait here for whatever that Sprite cruiser has in store. Mr. Benning, set your shuttle to automatic and get it back to Calusa Station. From here on, we stick together. Ten minutes later, the remaining shuttle was back in orbit, 900 miles above the planet's surface. Jared, Rory, and Benning stood up front with Anderson and the pilot, while the rest of the contact team sat behind them, coming to terms with the rushed summary Anderson had been able to give them. 
a species doomed according to arbitrary rules, a new mission plan to save them, and the risk of defying the Alliance itself. 2,000 miles ahead of them was the Sprite Cruiser, 10 miles of stacked circular disks and needle-like spires, product of a technology Jared knew Earth had only begun to comprehend. And between the disks were the Sprites themselves, open to space, their charcoal-gray polyhedral carapaces hardened to the vacuum and radiation. Jared activated the ship's comms panel and hailed the ship. Just contacting them instead of waiting for them to initiate was a breach of OAL protocol, another offense to add to a long list of transgressions. Remain in orbit while sterilization occurs, the reply came moments later, a bland synthetic voice steeped in gender-neutral, unemotive tones. Please clarify reasons for sterilization, Jared said. He didn't work directly with the OAL speakers, but he'd heard that simple, direct sentences were usually the best approach. Subject species is in violation of alliance criteria, was the similarly terse reply. Please indicate nature of violation, Jared said. Subject species is in violation of alliance criteria, the sprite repeated. We don't have time to play this subtle, Jared said, more to himself than anyone. Then into the comm unit. Our research has revealed new data that could influence the criteria. Request delay to sterilization. Humans have no information on alliance criteria. This is painful, Benning said. Are they always this hard to talk to? So I've heard, Jared said. Then to the sprites. We strongly request that the sterilization is halted in the light of new information. This is vital to the success of the contact mission. Humans have no information on Alliance criteria. Jesus Christ, Benning said. What do we have to do to get it through to these things? Jared knew, but the direction this conversation was taking might have consequences beyond anything he'd done so far. He took a deep breath and then spoke into the comm unit again. Our studies lead us to assess with high confidence that the Karanoi are not and will never be in violation of Alliance criteria. He was sure he could detect a pause before the reply came. With AI minds running billions of times faster than human brains, to make them stop and think even for a heartbeat was some achievement. Present proof of this assertion, the sprite ship answered. Any ideas, Jared said to those gathered round him. Not beyond telling them straight out how much we know, Rory said. But then that was always going to be the case, wasn't it? Jared knew that it was true. It was time to go for broke. He turned to the comm unit and addressed the sprites one more time. A final pre-contact investigation of Karanoi capabilities has just been performed. A group of Karanoi have recently developed the ability to analyze conflict as a mathematical phenomenon. We have seen them derive theorems proving the futility of instigating such conflicts, including those where techniques based on causality violation are employed. As such, we do not believe they pose a threat to Alliance interests. There was silence from the sprites. Ten, 
Twenty seconds passed without answer. My God, what have you done? Anderson said. If you're right, and we're not even meant to know about that, a message from the Sprite cruiser interrupted him. This claim confirms that violation has occurred, it said. Hold station. We're done for, Benning said. More time passed while those in the shuttle waited in silence, the atmosphere of the cabin turning cold and clammy with apprehension. I've done it, Jared thought. I've just consigned the human race to history to stand up for a principle. His palms were sweating as he stood in the cockpit, knuckles white on the grab rail. Then, at last, the final message from the sprite ship came through. The Alliance has concluded that contact with the subject race can continue. No information regarding Alliance criteria will be given to them. Then the sprite ship departed, accelerating away so rapidly that on the shuttle's view screens it appeared to just vanish. That's it, Anderson said. They let us off just like that. Then a light appeared off to the side. For a few seconds it shone brighter than the sun, then diminished. Everyone in the shuttle crowded to the side windows, and what faced them was Carpathia, sole moon of Charon Sea. The surface was glowing white-hot, a spherical envelope of gas expanding around it. Then it cooled to the orange of molten magma, then the red of sunset. Already those watching could see that the surface had been obliterated entirely. "'Jesus Christ!' Rory said. "'They nuked the thing!' "'What the hell?' Benning said. "'It's a warning,' Jared said. "'They weren't fooled. "'They know what we did and why. "'If our membership was in the balance before, "'then it's running at critical now. "'They've shown us what's in store if we defy them again.' They watched Carpathia's surface, cooling and flowing, its shattered surface lit by the menacing red glow of nuclear annihilation. The plain was near the equator, with a vast jungle-covered river basin to the south, hot blue skies above, and a warm dry wind blowing off the deserts further west. The Karanoi settlement here was like a sprawl of teepees on a grassy meadow, straddling a narrow river of blue-green water. On the edge of the settlement was their emissary tower, far larger than the one Jared had seen at the last site, and beyond that was a long-range transmitter field, six square kilometers of phase-locked dipole antennae, tens of thousands of them, each wood-and-wire construction no more advanced than the emissary transmitters, but forming a phased array that could command probes as far as the outer system and barely ten miles away was the place where one of those probes had been launched. The site cleared and leveled so the rocket could be assembled, elevated, then packed with propellant, and launched. They never built and tested things, Jared thought, as he looked around the examples of Karanoi technology. There were no labs, no research institutes, no particle accelerators or mass spectrometers. All their experiments were thought experiments, carried out in whatever shared world that bizarre song trance took them to. And then they would snap out of it and do this, and it would just work every time. Then he looked toward the center of the settlement, where Anderson had walked in, alone, 
to greet the Karanoi. There was a small crowd of them, awake and aware this time, and Anderson was talking to them, the translator unit in his hand, occasionally gesturing back to the shuttle and the rest of the team waiting a safe, non-threatening distance away. So tell me something, Jared said to Rory as they watched. How did your grandfather know so much if Alliance rules are meant to be so secret? Let's just say the Alliance isn't as unified as they like us to think. There are factions, even within the Sprites, who think they are doing things wrongly. My grandfather was lucky enough to meet them first, and they were able to help us. But we needed to maintain the pretense of true compliance, and that bound him to secrecy. Unfortunately, with the Karanoi, it fell to us to play good cop. Or to me. Rory had carried this knowledge alone for years, Jared realized, with the fate of entire races in his hands. It felt good to share the burden, just by being let in on the facts. I don't know what's going to happen when this gets reported back to Earth, he said. I'm in trouble, I know it. You may be too. But now we know what we've gotten ourselves into with the Alliance, what we're really up against. The people in control might realize the situation has changed. You think we can help other races? Ones we encounter in future? Possibly. I can't help feeling we've delivered the Karanoi to the Alliance on a plate by bringing them in. But they'd already been discovered, and you can't put the clock back. But if the Alliance itself is divided, at least we get to pick which side we're on. It's not just us against them. Rory nodded slowly and looked up, where Carpathia sat high in the daylight sky. They had arranged another demonstration of power in the hours after its surface had been near vaporized. Somehow, incredibly, it had been re-sculpted as it cooled, regaining its former appearance as if nothing had happened. The sheer power required to manipulate matter on a planetary scale was, if anything, a more sobering show of supremacy than the destruction that preceded it. So, were we naives? Jared said. Humans, I mean, when your grandfather made contact? We were, Rory said. We would have been in the firing line. Have you ever heard of Alderman's Theorem? No. That's what the crucial branch of game theory is known as on Earth. Except, John Alderman never came up with it. He'd recently died in a car crash when our first contact happened, so records were fabricated to make it look like he'd figured it out just before his death. Like the songs you concocted for the Karanoi? A fake breakthrough, just in time? Exactly. They carried on watching Anderson in silence. Then, ten minutes after he had started discussions with the Karanoi, he turned to face the contact team and waved them over. Looks like we're on. Rory said. He wasn't an official contact team member any more than Jared was, but the rule book for this enterprise had already been thrown out of the window. They walked over to join Anderson, fifteen of them in all, including the contact team proper, and gathered in front of the Karanoi. They were strangely amphibian in some ways. Their rhomboid, cream-white bodies with four long, frog-like limbs— and faces taking up the whole front section of their torsos. Their eyes were expressionless black marbles, surrounded by openings for air, food, hearing, and speech. The two species stood regarding each other. Then the Karanoi nearest to Anderson said something, a short, sharp chirp of noise 
that came out of the translator as, They otherworld also? Yes, Anderson said, they are. Another chirp. Many other worlds exist? Yes, a great many. Then the Karanoid turned to face its own kind and said something else, another burst of noise, then repeated it once more. Other worlds, the translator said. Life on other worlds. Told you so. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Williams, Writers of the Future, and everybody else is there, please. Big thank you to Dave as well. Dave, that, what a fantastic narration. Dave, honestly, thank you so much. So next up is, sandwiched between these two great stories is our very own JJ Campanella with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and aggravations, my excellent listeners, and welcome to this April 2012 science news update. I'm your exhausted host for this new science podcast, Jim Campanella. Besides my usual chronic exhaustion from having small children, it's nearing the end of our semester right now, and my to-do list is getting way out of hand. I have term papers from two classes to grade. I have quizzes from another class to grade. I have an exam from a third class to grade. Homework assignments from two classes to grade. A quiz to write. And a last homework assignment to compose for an advanced graduate class in protein biology. I'm training two students in my laboratory at the moment who have not had much luck this semester in their research work. So I have been able to spend a minimal amount of time with them since they have been repeating so many experiments, changing variables to try to get them to work. Of course, the irony is that now that I have suddenly just very small amounts of time to work with them, their experiments start to actually be successful, and I need to spend more time with them teaching them new techniques. I ran out of lecture material three weeks early for one of my graduate classes, and I need to write additional lectures for the closing days of this hellish semester. Writing lecture takes about three times longer, in this case about 22 hours, than the actual lectures take to give. Oh, and to top it off, I just got a journal article back from review for the second time, which, according to the editors, still needs a massive rewrite. And the editors gave a deadline for the rewrite that I would rather not think about. I have a colleague that once told me that he became an academic because it seemed the best way to get paid and still have huge amounts of time to quote-unquote goof off. At the moment, I am not feeling like my goof-off time is available quite yet. Let's just get on with the science stories so I can get back to slogging through my actual work. The first story of the night suggests a major breakthrough in reproductive science, and perhaps implies some major social changes as well. Dr. Jonathan Tilley from Massachusetts General Hospital and his colleagues reported February 26th in Nature Medicine, a new finding in our understanding of overproduction in mouse and human females. As you all know, it's been sacred medical dogma and pretty much a fact of life that women are born with a certain number of eggs, a few million, and the eggs age and are not replenished as the woman herself ages. She reaches menopause, and that's the end of reproduction as the eggs run out, so to speak. Well, Tilly has discovered that ovaries have stem cells that are present and replenish the eggs at, well, at least a detectable level. Tilly's original research sought to examine menopause 
and try to track the death of ova as they age. When his group counted the number of healthy egg cells in mouse ovaries, they saw a steady decline as the mice aged, as you would expect. But they also found that for some unexplainable reason, the dying cells greatly outnumbered the starting population of cells. In short, there were more eggs than the mouse started with. Tilly stated in his paper, quote, What we had was a math problem. We refocused all of our efforts on this glaring mathematical dilemma, unquote. It turns out that there are more dying eggs than healthy ones because stem cells in mouse ovaries are constantly making more eggs, which then die off. That discovery was not exactly welcomed by reproductive biologists. Tilly states that few of his colleagues accepted the results since there was no previous evidence for any process of replenishment in mammalian ovaries. Even the ones who did believe Tilly did not believe that humans would have similar stem cells to those that were found in mice. Tilly was able to quiet the doubters on both sides with work in his recent paper where he describes how they finally isolated stem cells from human ovaries that had been removed from six women during sex reassignment surgeries in Japan. There are not a lot of stem cells in an ovary. Tilly found that only about 1.5% of cells in the ovaries fit the stem cell profile. The researchers compiled molecular profiles of the cells and demonstrated that the stem cells are able to make precursors to eggs when transplanted into other ovaries. Even though Tilly has clearly shown that these cells exist and are active, there are still those who do not support his conclusions, saying that just because he has isolated the stem cells does not mean that they can be manipulated in any helpful or useful way. The cells may not be able to develop into viable adult ova. Despite the skeptics, Tilly still insists that he has made a major discovery that could help millions of women around the world. Quote, stopping the depletion of eggs or keeping ovaries functioning could help stave off many of the health problems women experience after menopause. If we can somehow control the biological clock, to me, the possibilities are endless. Unquote. The next story from the March 15th issue of the journal Scientific Reports is an update on cell phones and their nasty potential effects. At this point, there's still little evidence that cell phones cause cancer which is a good thing, which everyone should plainly be happy about. However, you may remember months ago that we reported a story that suggested that even though cell phone radiation does not cause cancer, it may have more subtle effects by changing enzymatic pathways while the signal is being broadcast, that is, while the phone is actually on. That paper showed pretty clearly that an active cell phone was able to turn on and alter cellular pathways in the brain. At the time, there did not appear to be any bad outcomes from those cellular changes. But this new paper from reproductive endocrinologist Dr. Hugh Taylor of Yale Medical School may have finally found a nasty consequence. Taylor rigged up cell phones to pregnant mouse cages. Half the phones were actively receiving a call on mute for the entirety of the mice pregnancies, which last about 17 days. I would not want to be paying for this fellow's minutes. The other phones were left inactive. On average, pups from the mothers exposed to cell phone radiation performed worse on memory tests, were more active, and less anxious than pups who were not exposed to the cell phone radiation. Nerve signaling in the prefrontal cortex, that's the main reasoning part of the brain, was also dampened in those exposed mice. 
In his report, Taylor suggested that the behavioral and brain defects are similar to those seen in people with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. He speculated that increased cell phone use could elucidate why we are seeing an increase in ADHD in our children. This conclusion was not widely accepted by scientists. They argued that it's premature to translate the findings from mice to humans. And doubters say they are even unsure whether the affected pups actually even have a homologue of ADHD. Finally, they state that human fetuses have more protective amniotic fluid around them than mice do, so the cell phone exposure may have fewer ramifications than Taylor assists. Although they do not have faith in Taylor's conclusions, even the skeptics still agree that pregnant women should avoid carrying a cell phone near the abdomen, just in case. Taylor, who refuses to back down on his findings, states, quote, I don't want to sensationalize this or cause panic, but I think it's worth being cautious, unquote. The next story is kind of interesting for anyone who has trouble getting motivated to exercise. It appears that humans evolved with a reward system for actually getting up and moving our butts, but that reward system seems to have been largely forgotten by everyone except possibly marathon runners because humans are now pretty bloody sedentary to what we once were. Well, what am I dribbling about? Dr. David Raiklin of the University of Arizona has published a paper this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology that suggests if we actually became more active, perhaps humans might be mentally happier and not quite so prone to depression. Raiklin explains that our ancient hunter-gatherer kin were long-distance endurance athletes. He says, quote, aerobic activity has played a role in the evolution of lots of different systems in the human body, which may explain why aerobic exercise seems to be so good for us, unquote. He further points out that testing the hypothesis that we evolved for high endurance performance is a problem because most other mammalian endurance athletes are quadrupedal, four-footed, and didn't evolve on two legs. So he says, Quote, we got interested in the brain as a way to look at whether or not evolution stimulated exercise behavior in humans through motivation pathways, unquote. Well, it turns out that that's exactly what the brain did. Most human athletes experience the infamous runner's high after great exertion. That high exists and is caused by endocannabinoid signaling in the so-called reward centers of the brain. For several decades, it was wondered exactly why we had cannabinoid receptors at all in our brains. Cannabinoids are the active ingredient in marijuana, the THC. It was wondered why anyone would have these. Well, it turns out that we have natural cannabinoids that are produced by our brain. Raikland says that this reward system was able to evolve, becoming more potent in mice as they increased their exercise levels over generations. However, little was known about the role of endocannabinoids in the other aerobically active mammals. So Raiklin and his cohort decided to find out how exercise influenced the endocannabinoid levels of two mammalian natural athletes, humans and dogs, and one species that is not much of an athlete, the ferret. Raiklin and his company recruited humans and pet dogs from around Arizona. The researchers then trained the participants to run and walk on a treadmill and collected blood samples from them before and after exercise. Now, surprisingly, when they started the ferret work, they found that ferrets are not as agreeable as humans and dogs. 
They had to wait till the ferrets wanted to exercise, which became quite a tedious task, as you might imagine. After finally getting all the blood samples, they analyzed the endocannabinoid levels and found that the concentrations of one cannabinoid had rocketed in the blood of the dogs and humans after a brisk run. When the team tested the human runner's state of mind, they found that the athletes were much happier after exercise. However, when the team analyzed the ferrous blood samples, the animal's cannabinoid levels did not increase during exercise. They did not produce those brain chemicals in response to high-intensity exercise, in short. Those results led Raikland to suggest that natural selection used the endocannabinoid system as a stimulation for endurance exercise in humans and other animals that walk and run over long distances. In short, exercise and you will be happy. That old saw about how good it is to quote-unquote feel the burn is actually accurate if our brain has anything to say about it. Raikland says, quote, These results suggest that natural selection may have been motivating higher rather than low-intensity activities in groups of mammals that evolved to engage in these types of aerobic activities, unquote. Additionally, Raikland suggests that the present crisis in humans who have chronic depression may spring directly from our lack of exercise. We evolve for exercise and to be amazing athletes. And now, let's face it, we are pretty much couch potatoes. Raikland suggests that our own cannabinoids are probably a silver bullet to solve not just the depression problem, but the obesity problem as well. Exercise, get happy, get thin. So, wow, makes you want to jump up and do several miles of running to get that high, huh? Well, hmm, go easy, boys and girls. Nothing's ever that simple. Raikland states, quote, Couch potatoes are not about to leap suddenly out of their comfy chairs and experience the pleasurable effects of exercise because they probably cannot produce enough endocannabinoids. Inactive people may not be fit enough to hit the exercise intensity that leads to this sort of rewarding sensation, unquote. In short, you may kill yourself if you try to run or exercise enough to actually get a high if you are not in shape already. Wow, that's a serious bummer. But there still is hope. In the paper, Raikland says that he is optimistic that inactive individuals can be helped to build up their exercise tolerance until they can cross the threshold where they can become motivated to exercise by endocannabinoids. So you may yet feel better if you are overweight and depressed. What about if you're overweight, depressed, and bald as well? Is there any hope for you? Well, according to Dr. George Cossarellis of the University of Pennsylvania, yes, there may be hope for the hair follicle impaired yet. He reported some new research on hair growth in the March 21st issue of the journal Science Translational Medicine. Cossarellis had previously found that bald men still have hair follicle stem cells. They are not lost as the men age and go bald, but those cells are simply no longer active in the bald areas of the head. He hypothesized that either the stem cells lacked growth stimuli or there is some sort of inhibitor being made that prevented the cells from growing. To find out which hypothesis was correct, his team analyzed gene activity in scalp samples taken from men undergoing hair transplant procedures. They found 81 genes with higher activity in bald areas of the head compared with those covered in hair. After analyzing which genes might be important, 
Cozzarellas decided that ones connected with hormones were probably the most important. Among those hormone-interactive genes was the one that makes prostaglandin D2. Cozzarellas hypothesized that prostaglandin might be holding back hair growth. Oddly enough, earlier research had previously suggested that a different prostaglandin called F2 actually stimulates the growth of eyelashes. Cozzarella states that, quote, prostaglandins often have a yin and a yang. One prostaglandin may stimulate hair growth, but another might stop it, unquote. In his new study just reported, he actually found evidence that prostaglandin type D2 inhibited hair growth in human hair follicles in the laboratory. Additionally, mice treated with the D2 slowed their hair growth when it was applied to their skin. Furthermore, when they genetically engineered mice to overproduce prostaglandin D2 in their skin, the mice went bald. Prostaglandin D2 works in the skin stem cells through a protein called GPR44. That protein sets off a biochemical cascade reaction when it detects the presence of prostaglandin D2. Hair growth in mice where GPR44 was no longer made was not inhibited by prostaglandin D2. And yes, if you're thinking that's a good thing, you're right. That result suggests that drugs that block GPR44 might actually help to treat baldness. However, be patient a bit longer because there is always a caveat with these things. One caveat is that no one yet understands how all the different prostaglandins interact, so you don't want to go inhibiting one before you know exactly what it will do to the others. Additionally, there's some evidence to suggest, and this is mainly from the studies of minoxidil, the hair growth medicine, that stimulating prostaglandins may also induce hair growth. It may be that hair growth is not simply controlled by one or two prostaglandins, but by a balance between competing prostaglandins and not just inhibiting one. So again, be patient, but hope certainly seems to be around the corner if you wait a bit longer. We will finish the night with an answer to a question that my son asked me while watching an episode of the kids' show, Busy Town Mysteries. For those of you not familiar with this animated show, let me explain that it's a very simple mystery show in which animated animals, primarily an uncharacterized mammal of some kind named Huckle, who might be some species of cat, look for clues and solve mysteries around their town. It's a cute, brightly colored show that encourages kids to solve puzzles by answering the who, what, where, and whys of a situation. At any rate, in this particular mystery, there were a series of holes over a doorway that the investigating animals found were placed there by a woodpecker. Eventually, the culprit was observed pecking at a tree and looking for insects for his dinner. My not-quite-four-year-old son asked how the woodpecker can bang its head on a wall or tree and not hurt itself. I considered this a moment and finally admitted that I had no idea. Certainly, head injuries are a serious issue for mammals. Head trauma has become a major problem over the last few years with athletes and soldiers constantly being injured. Obviously, even if you don't get a limb blown off by an IED, your skull may be seriously injured by the shock compression wave of the nearby explosion. This has become far too commonplace in the last 10 years. And also, certainly, football players are not safe, and boxers get punch drunk after years of fighting because their brains have been bounced around on the insides of their skulls so much. So why are woodpeckers immune to this violence? Well, this month in the journal Plus One, 
Dr. Liz Hen Wang of Beihang University and her colleagues may finally have an answer for my son. Wang and her group analyzed the movements and detailed anatomical features of great spotted woodpeckers. They initially used high-speed cameras to record the movements of the woodpeckers who pecked at a sensor that recorded their force. Wang found that the pecking speeds were pretty fast at about 7 meters per second and that there was a great deal of deceleration at impact. Wang then did brain scans of the woodpecker skulls to examine the bone structures there. She also mechanically tested specimens of bone to obtain the exact mechanical properties of that tissue. Finally, putting all her data together, she came up with a computer model of the woodpecker's head that could simulate the motions and impacts that the bird experienced. She then took her model and modified various anatomical features, such as beak length, to examine the effects these had on how the force is transferred at impact. Apparently, there's no one factor that protects the woodpecker, but sort of a constellation of several factors. First, the researchers concluded that an uneven distribution of spongy bone, primarily at the forehead, may play a role in shock absorption. Second, they suggested that the bird's hyoid apparatus, that's the cartilage and bone structure in the woodpecker's nasal cavity, may act as a sort of safety belt for the head, absorbing shocks and bearing high stress as the brain gets moved around inside their skulls. Finally, third, from the 3D computer model, the researchers found that the outer tissue layer of the upper beak is longer than it is on the bottom, but that the bone structure is longer on the bottom than it is on the top. And what exactly does that mean from a functional standpoint? Well, the researchers think that those unequal lengths may allow impact to be distributed away from the brain via the lower beak, so that the brain is less affected by all that banging around. I was a bit bemused to see that the paper suggested as one of its goals to create, quote, woodpecker-inspired safety devices, unquote, to keep us safe from impacts. I guess that as silly as that sounds, it may kind of make sense. Certainly a better understanding of the material properties and distribution of the shock-absorbing spongy bone can be incorporated into the design of new safety helmets to make them safer. As a parent, I know that I would appreciate any apparatus to make my kids less prone to injuring themselves. Perhaps the woodpecker actually has the secret to surviving all those nasty impacts and tumbles that may hurt so many. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, keep those cell phones away from your gonads, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Oh, Jim, as I say, always a pleasure, sir. Always a pleasure, Jim, honestly. And I guess, I guess as well, I know how just how bloody busy you are as well. Jim, thank you so much. Next up is the next story from Writers of the Future 28, Volume 28. This is the overall winning story. This is the, the top dog out of them stories. And there's, I think there's 13 in this, this um, collection as well. This story is by David Carini, who was born and raised in Illinois, where he became familiar with both cities and cornfields. Despite his love of corn and tall buildings, he found he prefers neither. Instead, he lives in a place that is a wondrous combination of the two called a suburb. 
The oldest of eight, David grew up wandering the acres of forest behind his home. A heavy rainfall or a snowstorm could transform those woods into another world, and he often spent his day exploring, creating stories. After earning a degree in economics from the University of Illinois, hence the cornfields, he returned home and married the girl of his dreams. Like any good editor, when she isn't diligently working to improve his stories, his wife gives him all the encouragement he could ever need. Beyond writing, David works in sales, reads submissions for the Hugo-nominated Lightspeed magazine, and writes articles for his website, Fantasy Fiction. This is his first published work. And I can see at the end of that, this story, I'll just straight away put on David's little acceptance speech of the award, you know, for winning the, you know, the grand prize. This story is narrated by, I would like to say, our very own Josh Roseman. Now, Josh as well, just there's no stopping this fella as well. You know, he's getting, he's got a new story coming out in the April-May 2012 issue of Asimov's Greener. He says it's a piece about sex, marriage and relationships set in 60 so years into the future. Josh, you know what I mean? Getting accepted by Sheila Williams on a constant basis now. This kitty, I hope um, I hope Josh actually lets us play that story as well when it's kind of out of its little tenure with Asimov's. I put a link on to Josh's site as well. He's over there at Escape Pod writing reviews and everything, and he's done fantastic narrations over here. <laughs> Josh gets sometimes gets the big ones, and he, for constantly saying he doesn't want any more big ones, big stories, he often gets them. Josh, I could just give you a big bear hug. Thank you very much, sir. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Paradise Aperture by David Karani. I eyed the door with disgust. The shocking blue was brighter than I usually photographed, but maybe that was where I'd been going wrong. Marie had always loved vibrant colors. If she was behind any door, it would be one like this. Two years ago, I'd barely left the Midwest, let alone the country. Yet here I was, halfway across the world, standing in the long-dead garden of an abandoned house in Tunisia. The town of Sidi Bou Said spread along the sparkling Mediterranean below, stark white buildings accented in bold strokes of blue. Once I would have been entranced by the breathtaking vista. Now it just looked tired and dusty. I turned back to the door, set in white stone and arched at the top, it had been intricately inked in swirling black dots reminiscent of henna. I rested my hand on the rough wood and closed my eyes. It didn't feel any different than a normal door. But then, they never did. I shook my head, halting my admiration. I couldn't be sidetracked. The mystical blue doors had drawn me here, but ultimately they were just a means to an end. We waiting for something, Johnny? The voice belonged to my daughter. Irene. One hand on her hip, she watched me with a tapping foot, occasionally blowing swooped bangs from her eyes. She had Marie's hair, a fire engine red that looked fake, but wasn't. Unlike her mother, Irene kept it short, like her temper. The sun needs to be at the right angle, I said patiently, wishing again she wouldn't call me Johnny. Usually I ignored her when she called me by my first name, but if I did that all the time, we'd never talk. The girl sure could be persistent. How the hell do you know that? I laughed. If she only knew the dozens of letters I got every day asking that same question. I guess you might say it was a gift, but too often it felt like a curse. 
For one thing, I watch my language, I said. Seriously? Gut feeling, I said, shrugging. I just know. Irene wrinkled her nose and folded her arms across her chest, but said nothing. She played tough, but I knew the tribal tattoo down her left arm was a five-year temp, and that she hated the onyx stud in her nose more than she hated her ex-boyfriend. A cool breeze rose off the bay, stealing a moment of heat and bringing sounds of the festival from the streets down the way. Ankle-deep in twisted weeds, I wiped sweat from my forehead and forced a clearing for the tripod. Hand me the Deltex, I said. Irene stared at me blankly. The gray camera case. With the gracelessness of inattentive youth, she fumbled with the case slung behind her back, unzipping it with one hand and peeling out the camera. I fought the urge to cringe, even when she tossed the camera instead of walking the two steps to hand it to me. Five thousand dollars of hardware whirled through the air. But it wasn't the first time this had happened. I caught it easily. What have we said about throwing things? Easy, Pops. You caught it just fine. What's the big deal? Honestly, with money no longer an issue and three backups over her shoulder, it wasn't a big deal. Not in the mood for a fight, I almost let it go. Almost. The big deal, I said, very calmly, is you need to learn respect for people's things. Not like you can't just, it doesn't matter how many cameras I can afford, I said, anticipating her biggest argument. It's a matter of principle. Principles suck. I grinned. That's a matter of opinion. She stuck out her tongue, but didn't argue back. She knew I was right, and with Irene, that was as good as a victory. I squinted up at the sun, a searing white orb in the empty sky. It still didn't feel right, but I set up the camera anyway, careful to frame the door with enough stone. Any cropping would destroy the image, so the proportions had to be perfect. If they weren't, the door would never open, and I'd be left with a very expensive, very useless, life-size photo. I couldn't take that chance. Once I captured a door, it couldn't be recaptured, no matter how identical the image. I'd found that out the hard way with a few photos, but I tried not to think about them. Surely Marie wouldn't have been behind those doors. They'd been so unexciting. Why are we all the way up here? Irene asked. We're missing the festival. We're not here for the festival, I said, adjusting the shutter speed for a longer exposure. And I can't risk some clumsy tourist ruining the picture. What's so special about these doors? I looked up from the viewfinder. You got a lot of questions today, I said. Something on your mind? Irene's head dropped and her shoulders sagged. Suddenly she was far younger and more vulnerable than 18 already was. You really think Mom's still out there? She asked. I can't believe anything else, I said. God knows I'm not the same man without her. Nana thinks you're cracked. She didn't want me to come. I grunted. My mother-in-law hadn't spoken with me since we'd lost Marie. I couldn't really blame her. If it wasn't for my photos, Marie might still be here. What do you think? I asked. She bit her lip, hesitating. I think... I think we'll find her. I nodded. Then don't ever let that go, no matter what anyone says. We'll get her back, Reenie, I promise. Irene seemed to relax. She even smiled, which was not something I was blessed with often. 
I saw a yellow door on our way up here, she said. A yellow door in a town of blue and white. Sounds like we've got one more stop after this, I said. Nice catch. The sun finally where I wanted it. I looked through the viewfinder, exhaled slowly, and took the shot. Several weeks and a hundred photos later, we stood in Heathrow Airport, the ebb and flow of thousands of strangers bubbling around us. Crowds had never bothered me before, but it was different now that so many of them seemed to recognize me. Irene leaned against a pillar, eyes closed, bobbing to the music from her oversized headphones. I still don't know why I agreed to bring her along. At times, it seemed like she didn't even want to be along. But I knew how helpless she must feel. She wanted her mother back as much as I wanted my wife. A bald man in a business suit and overcoat wandered over, glancing at me over his newspaper. I nervously checked my watch. The only thing I hated more than flying was waiting to fly. The bald man made up his mind and moved toward me. I sighed internally. Here we go. You're that guy, aren't you? I pretended not to hear, positioning myself between the man and Irene. Sometimes these guys turned out to be real head cases. He edged closer and tapped my shoulder, ignoring all concepts of personal space. Yeah, I've seen you on the news, he said, jabbing his finger at me. You're that photographer. You must have me confused. What do you call those pictures you take? he asked. Reclusive doors? I gritted my teeth. He obviously wasn't going to leave me alone. Did they ever? Recursion doors, I corrected, checking my watch again. Boarding time was two minutes late. Yeah, that's it. World within a world or something, right? Now boarding, first class, the flight attendant announced. Finally. Something like that, I said, nudging Irene and eagerly pushing forward to hand over our tickets. A few people glared at me, but I ignored them. The man persisted, grabbing my sleeve. I turned to say something, but stopped. The man's breathing was heavy, his eyes bulging. I'd seen that look of fanaticism before. Is it true what they say? The man asked in a fierce whisper. Did you really discover paradise? The color drained from my face. Had the idea already come so far? It was like a virus I never meant to spread. I pulled my arm away and retreated down the ramp without answering. How could I? I slept for two days after returning home. The endless rounds of travel were definitely taking their toll, but it didn't matter. Pure exhaustion was the only way I slept these days. On the third day, Irene unceremoniously woke me. Johnny! She stood by my bed, snapping her fingers and pointing at the phone in her hand. I stared at her in the confusion of the half-awake. It's Nana. I let my head fall back to the pillow. Why now? Irene put the phone in my hand, and I lifted it to my ear. Hello, Margaret. It's time to put an end to this nonsense, Jonathan, my mother-in-law said. Good morning to you, too. I've humored you long enough. It was one thing when your actions affected only you. Now you're bringing your teenage daughter along. It's her decision. She gave an exasperated sigh. We've all accepted it. Why can't you? Because I haven't given up hope, I said, sitting up. I just have to find the right door, 
Damn it, Jonathan, the fire was two years ago, she said. You have to let it go. The door is gone. I was silent. Your daughter needs you, she said, and she needs the chance to move on. You want me to tell Irene her mother is dead. I want you to be her father. What happened to you? Her voice softened. I'm tired, Jonathan. For the longest time, I wanted to believe you were right. But I can't anymore. It's just too hard. I'm too old for false hope. I'm sorry to hear that, I said. We'll talk again soon. Goodbye, Margaret. I hung up without waiting for an answer. My hands were trembling. I balled them into tight fists and pressed them against my forehead. Everyone thought I was crazy. What was so crazy about wanting to believe your wife was still alive? The day I lost Marie, I'd come home to our little apartment over the antique shop and found it ablaze. A caravan of fire trucks, police cars, and ambulances had blockaded the collapsing building, a crowd of onlookers gawking into the flames with mixed looks of wonder and horror. I'd screamed and twisted and torn at the firefighters like a madman, but they'd held me back, told me the building was empty. They hadn't understood that the building could appear empty when it was not. They couldn't have known that while they'd held me down, my wife had been inside. Maybe I was crazy, but I knew one thing. Marie was alive. The door to our world was gone, but I would find another way in. I had to. Around noon, I dragged myself from bed and returned to the office, an unmarked stone building along the Chicago North Shore. It had a second-floor showroom, a first-floor jammed with massive industrial printers, and a basement full of discarded attempts to find my wife. Someone had stuck a sign to the front door, imploring me to repent of my evil ways. Needless to say, not everyone thought highly of my gift. I pulled the sign down, wondering again what good it did to have an unmarked building when everyone already knew where you were. I fumbled with my keys a moment before realizing there was no longer a keyhole in the door. I frowned at the keypad on the wall. Kensuke, my curator, had recently convinced me to upgrade the security system. It made sense considering the inventory in my basement was valued in the billions. I just had never used it. When had he found time to get it installed? I scratched the back of my head and stared into the surveillance camera, struggling to recall the eight-digit passcode. It was probably so obvious I'd never remember it. I threw up my hands in exasperation, suddenly regretting I'd asked Kensuke to leave off the buzzer. Might I have a word, Mr. Ward? I sighed and turned around. The man had the distinct look of a weasel in a suit, which was disappointingly unoriginal. His peppered hair was receding, the little he had left slicked back in greasy curls. Couldn't these people stick to the phone, instead of ambushing me at my front door? At least the phone I could ignore. What is it this time? I represent Rencota Pharmaceuticals, the representative said. He straightened his tie and flashed a smirk that turned my stomach. We are the world's largest. I know who you are, I said, waving a hand. Everyone knew Rencota. They had their claws and a lot more than pharmaceuticals. What do you want? I have been authorized to extend you an exclusive offer to work for our company. Exclusive offer to work? Or offer to work exclusively? The man pursed his lips, pressing them together in a flat line. The latter 
he said. Let me make this easy for you, I said. Not interested. The representative seemed taken aback. Obviously, he wasn't used to being turned down. You haven't even... What about the offer, he said. You haven't even heard the offer. Maybe I was being reckless. Why shouldn't I work for a powerful company like Rencota? I'd already sold myself out to the world's so-called elite. How would this be any different? And yet, it was different. I might sell to the elite, but never for them. I did this for Marie, and no one else. It was a thin line, but one that kept me sane. You're right, I said. I forgot to wait for that part. How about this? You write the number on a piece of paper, and I'll take a look. While the representative fumbled in his briefcase for a pen, I turned back to the keypad with a flash of insight and punched in the eight digits. The door unlocked with a click, and I briskly stepped through, swiping it closed behind me. I left courtesy behind a long time ago. A hand scanner awaited me in the foyer, one security measure even I couldn't screw up. I took the stairs to the showroom floor, expecting to find Kensuke preparing for an auction. The room was empty, but a selection of framed recursion doors had been brought up from the basement and propped in the corner. Shaped like a square donut, the room was surrounded on three walls with tall, multi-paned windows. The cube in the center of the room was for display, four doors to a wall. A single recursion door hung on the wall in front of me. It was a relatively unassuming door, weather-worn wood bordered in faded brick and overgrown ivy. Kensuke had matched it with a simple antique finish frame. I pressed my hand against the picture, feeling not the smooth photo paper, but the ancient wood of the garden door beyond. I lowered my hand to the cold iron handle and pushed. The door creaked painfully as it swung open, revealing the pocket world beyond. No matter how many times I opened the doors, it always caught me a little off guard. A mighty river curved away from the entrance, emerald and slate-colored mountains jutting from the waters like watchful giants. An ancient monastery had been built into the cliffs, whitewashed walls and tiered roof of red and gold, pristine under the perpetual sun. Inside would be empty and without the touch of dust or decay. How could I not feel awe? There was something far beyond physical appearance that left me breathless, despite myself. The pocket world provided everything. Inside you felt no pain, no anger, no sorrow. You didn't need to eat or sleep. It was possible you didn't even age. There was a reason people referred to the multiverse as paradise. You are late, Jonathan-sama. I jerked in surprise, yanking the recursion door shut with a thud. Kensuke stepped in beside me, placing a hand on my shoulder as I exhaled slowly. Forgive me, Kensuke said in his thick Japanese accent. He offered a small bow. I did not mean to startle you. It's okay, Ken, I said. Just edgy, I guess. Another fanatic approached me about paradise. Kensuke paused thoughtfully, folding his hands before him. It is not entirely impossible, he said. Do you not think so? It doesn't matter what I think. I could imagine nothing more arrogant than believing I had discovered paradise. Never mind that I didn't do anything, that the pictures just happened. True, Kensuke said, nodding. Though there are some who say reality is nine-tenths perception. What about all the paradise abusers? 
I had seen plenty of lives torn apart. Friends and loved ones neglected, careers destroyed, responsibilities abandoned, all because the lure of the multiverse far exceeded reality. I sold them paradise, and they turned it into a drug. Eden was lost to us for a reason, Kensuke said. Was it not? So who am I to give it back? God works in mysterious ways. I wish he'd work through someone else, I said. I nodded to the stack of recursion doors. When's the auction? This weekend. I scheduled it as soon as I learned of your return. Our patrons are getting restless. You have been gone some time. How long had it been this time? I tried to work the days in my head, but they just blurred together. How many days? Forty-two, Kensuke said, not including the two and a half you took while sleeping. I blinked in surprise. Had it really been so long? There are several hundred high-profile patrons on the waiting list, Kensuke continued. Let them wait. I don't cater to spoiled trust fund kids. Apologies, Jonathan-sama, Kensuke said, inclining his head slightly, but those spoiled children are the reason you are able to continue your work. I sighed, running a hand through my hair. Sometimes I truly regretted selling the recursion doors, but exorbitant production costs and an empty bank account had forced my hand. And, in the end, the doors were my only chance at finding Marie. I wouldn't hesitate to do it again. I'm sorry, Kensuke-san. I know you're right, but I don't have to like it. I'll see to it, first thing. Kensuke looked at me, deep lines of concern etched in his face. You will find her, my friend. For once, I didn't trust myself to respond. The night of the auction... I sat in my office off the showroom floor, reluctantly awaiting the proceedings. Kensuke had helped me load my latest photos into the swinging display, and I used a clicker to shuffle through. A false door at an Egyptian tomb, the inked blue door from Tunisia, a pair of massive double doors from a Spanish church. I flipped through worlds like so many photos in a catalog, sifting through endless realms until my eyes burned and my head felt light. Nothing. Hundreds of photos, and not one of them brought me closer to Marie. Sighing, I leaned back and thought again about attempting another finite recursion, photographing a door within the pocket world, but instantly dismissed it as too dangerous. The last time I'd tried, the pocket world had begun to shake. Granted, the tremors were weak, but in paradise, nothing shakes. It was enough to realize that the extended recursions affected the stability of the entire multiverse. I was forced to burn the doors. In retrospect, it made sense. According to the Drosta effect, an image within an image could theoretically continue forever. However, in practical terms, it could only continue so far as the resolution allowed. There was a knock at the door, and Kensuke entered. I am about to open the floor, he said. I nodded. I'll be out shortly. Thanks, Ken. Stretching my arms overhead, I moved into the bathroom and splashed water on my face. I took two aspirin for the headache I was soon to have and started to close the medicine cabinet, but stopped halfway. I cocked my head, staring at the endless reflection created between the cabinet mirror and the vanity mirror. A thought began to form in my head, something that struck me instantly as too risky, but I had to know. I strode from my office, buried in thought, nearly oblivious to the madness around me. Kensuke had hired extra security tonight, and with good reason, 
Absence really does make the heart grow fonder. We were packed to capacity. This was even more impressive when you considered the bidding started around a million dollars. I made for the door across the room, trying to appear casual in the hope no one would notice me. No such luck. Before I knew it, the weasel from Rencota intercepted me. How had he gotten in? Could we talk, Mr. Ward? Haven't we? I said. I thought my answer earlier was obvious. It was, the representative said. I've been asked to give you another chance. Excuse me? No contract this time. We just want to commission you for a special project. I eyed him darkly. Special project. What he wanted was a few recursion doors off the record, doors he wouldn't have to register with the government, and without government regulation he could put people inside to work indefinitely. We're done. I really think you should reconsider. Is that a threat? Of course not, he said with a faint smile. Merely a suggestion. The representative turned to leave, but paused. I understand there's legislation on the table regarding your recursion doors, he said. Apparently some members of the government don't believe you should be allowed to do whatever it is you do. They've been sitting on that for months. It'll never pass. He shrugged. Then I suppose you have nothing to worry about. I frowned, watching the representative go. Why had he been so confident this time? Are you all right? Kensuke asked. I took a deep breath and nodded. Yeah, I think so. Do me a favor and keep things running up here, Ken. I need to check the basement. Kensuke inclined his head. Of course. I took the stairs down, passing a voice recognition test to gain access to the basement. Lucky for me, Kensuke was an organizational genius. The entire basement had been outfitted with automated racks like a dry cleaner's, except instead of clothes, there was row upon row of hanging recursion doors. All I had to do was select the date the image had been captured, and the racks would shift to the appropriate position. I found the two I was looking for and pulled them off the rack. Taken almost a year apart on opposite sides of the world, each door was made entirely from mirror. Almost identical in build and shape, they would reflect each other endlessly. I didn't know what opening an infinite recursion like that would do, but I had an idea, which is why it had to be a last resort. Making a mental note to have Kensuke send the doors to my house, I climbed the stairs back to the auction. The thought of mingling with the crowd for the next few hours depressed me. It was time for another trip. The twin louver doors sagged against each other, narrow enough to be little more than exaggerated shutters. Faded by a ruthless sun, the turquoise paint peeled, revealing black wood beneath. I frowned through the viewfinder at the mustard-stained walls framing the doors. Surely Marie wouldn't be behind something as hideous as this. We'd come to Agra for the doors of the Taj Mahal, but I didn't have the luxury to pass up other opportunities. The doors squeaked in the wind, Rusty latch barely holding closed. Mumbling in disgust, I took the shot and we moved on. What's it like inside? Irene asked. The question actually surprised me. Sometimes I forgot she'd never experienced the multiverse. Maybe it was wrong of me to forbid it, but the truth was, ever since we lost Marie, I'd been terrified of going inside. For all the sense of immortality the pocket worlds offered, they left you surprisingly vulnerable to outside forces, especially fire.
Your mother and I used to disappear inside for hours, I said. I still remember the first time we crossed over, the lurch in motion as we were pulled forward, the shifting of lines as one world gave way to another, the overwhelming sense of peace. I've never felt anything like it. Irene stared into the distance. Peace, huh? Sounds nice. I nodded agreement, but I didn't want peace. I wanted my wife back. We continued up the road, neither wanting to break the silence. Finally, Irene stopped, pointing at another green-tinted door. What about that one? I looked it over carefully, then shook my head. Nope. It looks just like the last door. You're just like your mother, I said with a smile. There doesn't have to be a reason for everything. Sometimes you just need faith. Irene rolled her eyes. Trying to explain the concept of faith to a teenager was an unenviable task. Certain she was no longer listening. I didn't waste my breath. It was too hot for talking anyway. Can we walk the market? Irene asked. I shuddered at the idea of pushing through the throngs of people, but when she looked at me with those green eyes of hers, the same as her mother's, what was I supposed to say? Sure. Why not? Awesome! You're the best! I let Irene lead, content to take the back seat for once. We pushed through a sea of color, men and women in a mesmerizing variety of yellows, blues, and greens. She stopped at one of the stalls, examining the local jewelry. Mr. Ward. A man in a tailored suit stood in the shade of the stall, holding a cloth over his nose. Even across the world, I wasn't safe from the leeches. Wait here a minute, I said to Irene. She shrugged and continued sifting through multi-hued bead necklaces. I took the man out of earshot of my daughter. How the hell do you people find me? I asked, then held up my hands. Never mind. I don't want to know. What now? Sir, I don't think you... Who do you work with? Is it Rencota? I'm not from any company, the man said. What do you mean? I'm from the government, he said, holding up a badge. You've been ordered to cease and desist. How can they do this? My hand tightened around the glass of scotch until I was sure it would break. I didn't care if it did. It was all I could do not to hurl the glass at the wall. Kensuke looked at me sympathetically across the kitchen counter. He'd come as soon as I'd called with the news. It was strange, but he was really the only friend I had left. This has to be against free speech or something, I said. I'm afraid this is beyond freedom of speech. True enough. Even after the government required a permit for ownership, it wasn't a catch-all. People seemed intent on polluting paradise. Secret drug factories, human trafficking, murder cover-ups. Just because pain didn't exist in the multiverse didn't mean you couldn't bring it in. I tried not to think about the consequences of what I'd unleashed. You sound like you agree with them, I said sullenly, staring into my drink. I am only being rational, Jonathan-sama, Kensuke said. This is because I turned down the Renkota contract, isn't it? They're punishing me. Whether Renkota influenced the vote or not, Kensuke said, you did the right thing. What you do is a gift, and how you use it is up to you. The government can't stop me. They can, and they will. You are one of the most recognized faces in the world. Continuing your work now will be foolish. You have a daughter to think of. I have a wife to think of. I slammed my drink on the table with a crack. Or have you forgotten? I have not, 
Kensuke said, his expression unchanged. I continued to drink, amber liquid leaking down my wrist. Damn it, I said, standing woozily. I tripped and stumbled to the ground, staring into the grooves of the wood. All the fight went out of me. Kensuke helped me to my room, and I collapsed on the bed, eyes drooping. God damn it, I whispered. Kensuke paused on his way out. God is the only hope you have left, my friend. My head pounded. I'd slept through lunch and would have slept through dinner if not for the arrival of the recursion doors I'd requested. I left the two photos covered and set them facing each other in my study. Irene passed the room, headphones on, miming her music. Noticing the covered doors, she lowered the headphones and stuck her head in. What's the deal with the doors? Who said they're doors? Irene gave me a withering look. I'm working on a project, I said, choosing my words carefully. Irene's eyes narrowed. You're planning on doing something without me, aren't you? I looked down, avoiding her eyes. I'm sorry, Reenie. It's too dangerous. Reckless is what I didn't say. I don't care how dangerous it is. I want to go with you. Irene, don't do this to me. Irene. She flinched, and I instantly regretted my tone. But it had to be done. This is not a discussion, I said. I will not risk your life on top of everything else. But it's fine to risk yours, Irene said. Her face was nearly the color of her hair. What if something happens to you? Where does that leave me? There were tears in her eyes now, and I forced myself to look at her. I finally realized why she always begged to come along when I traveled, even though she pretended to hate it. She'd already lost her mother, and every time I went away, she lost her father, too. Suddenly, I doubted myself. Nothing is going to happen to me, I forced myself to say. Irene looked up and sniffed. Promise me? I opened my mouth to promise her everything she wanted and more, but I couldn't. You can't, can you? You just have to trust me, I said. I know what I'm doing. How can you possibly know what you're doing? She had me there. I sighed. Listen, I'm not going until tomorrow morning. We'll talk more then, okay? Her hug caught me by surprise. I love you, Dad. It had been a long time since she'd called me that. So why did I feel like such a monster? I love you too, Reenie. I sat in my study for a long time, staring at the covered recursion doors. What a selfish asshole I'd been, pretending to know how she felt, but never being there for her. I'd traveled the world to save my wife, only to let my daughter slip away. Marie would be ashamed. There was my answer. I couldn't risk it. Not with Irene to think of. I had sacrificed too much of our relationship already. I'd find my wife, but it would have to be another way. Something was wrong. I jolted awake with a gasp, entangled in the sheets. Moonlight flooded my room, bleaching everything bone white. A cool breeze blew in through the window, but otherwise the night was quiet. I tried to fall back asleep, but couldn't shake the feeling of anxiety. Pulling on jeans, I padded down the hall to Irene's room. It was after midnight, but I swear the girl never slept. Still, I didn't want to wake her if I didn't have to. She'd just think I was a crazy parent. I knocked lightly and edged the door open, peering into the darkness. 
Irene? Panic seized me as I waited for my eyes to adjust, and I flipped on the lights. Her bed was empty. I tore through the first floor, struggling to breathe as I called for my daughter. She was gone. My heart caught in my throat, and I felt my eyes drawn to the floor above me. Please, God, no. I scrambled up the stairs, taking them two and three at a time, and burst into my study. I froze in horror. Oh, Irene, what have you done? The protective sheets had been torn from the opposing photos, revealing the mirrored doors beneath. Facing as they were, they created an endless hall in both directions. I took a deep breath to calm myself, trying to slow the pounding of my heart. She couldn't have been gone long. Yanking on my shoes, I inspected both doors. The one on the right still had a smudge from Irene's fingers. I wet my lips, pressed my hand against the door, and stepped through. I had brought the apocalypse to paradise. As I'd expected, the infinite recursion had created a path between worlds, a sort of slipstream that enabled me to jump from one to another in a single step. But something in that connection had destabilized the multiverse. The pocket worlds were collapsing. The ground trembled, quakes rolling beneath my feet in increasingly powerful waves. Clouds twisted in the sky, bruise-colored serpents weaving through the air as electrostatic discharge arced between them. I stepped forward, and my surroundings blurred, shifting to the next world as I lurched forward. The sensation was similar to passing through a recursion door but multiplied tenfold. Even after all the doors I'd traveled, the lurch was brutal. I blinked several times and shook my head. The sky above fractured like glass, immense cracks spreading across the firmament. Shards broke away, shattering upon the ground and leaving behind an empty void. I found Irene on the fifth step. She was outside the slipstream, on her hands and knees, throwing up. For someone who had never experienced the lurch before, I was amazed she'd made it this far. I left the slipstream and knelt beside her. Gravity was still intact, but I could feel a vacuum forming. The surroundings were unaffected, but the tug was unmistakable. The multiverse was reacting the only way it knew how. Like the immune system, it was rejecting foreign objects. It was trying to pull us out. The sun an ominous shade of crimson, flickered in the broken sky like a dying light bulb. I put an arm around Irene, as much to comfort her as to keep her from drifting from our position. I'm sorry, she said, breathless like she'd run a marathon. Something struck me. She could feel pain. I know, I said, helping her to her feet. This is my fault. I let my drive to find your mother interfere with being your father. I'm sorry, Rini. She nodded weakly, wiping at her mouth. I have to take you back. I'm fine, she insisted. The fierceness in her eyes made me proud, but I knew she couldn't make it much farther in her condition. Please, Irene, do this for me. Irene closed her eyes, and after a moment she nodded. I let out a sigh of relief and helped her into the slipstream. Five steps, and we were back in my study. She stumbled woozily as I helped her to the couch, covering her in a blanket. I glanced over my shoulder at the still-open slipstream. Go, 
Irene said. Bring Mom home. I hesitated, then nodded and kissed her on the forehead. Stepping into the slipstream, I was instantly thrown to my back as another quake rocked the multiverse. A rift split the world, sending a snow-capped peak tumbling down the side of a mountain. Fighting off a wave of nausea, I pushed myself up and stepped again. I had to go farther, faster. Every step was a gale force now, skin and muscle pressing against my bones. It felt like being hit by a tidal wave over and over again. My nose dripped and I wiped it away, hand coming back with a bright red smear. I ignored it and pushed on, surveying the passing worlds in a glance. One hundred, three hundred, five hundred. The worlds whirred by like a slideshow on Fast Forward. I'd know our world when I saw it, wouldn't I? Dread twisted around my heart. The thing I feared most crept from its hiding place. What if our world was gone? What if the fire had destroyed not just the door, but the world itself? What if Marie... No. I gritted my teeth and forced the thoughts away. I'd traveled too long and too far to end like this. I stopped, suddenly taking a step back. I almost didn't recognize it. Quakes had devastated the majestic landscape, and the vibrant azure sky was half-missing, but it was our world. I'd finally found it. I pulled myself from the slipstream and leapt into the chaos, screaming Marie's name. A canyon-sized chunk of sky broke away, crashing upon the mountains and scattering to dust. As if on cue, the rain started. Torrents pouring from the jigsaw sky wherever there was a sky left to pour from. Our world lacked a door, so the vacuum I sensed earlier was absent. Yet I felt strangely pulled. I didn't realize where I was running until I was already there. The massive waterfall still flowed, pounding down the mile-high cliff face. My head whipped back and forth, body barely in control as I scanned the clearing. Then I saw her. She lay in a heap by the lake, her bare feet in the sand as water lapped against them. Broken pieces of sky lay around her, and a gash on her forehead trickled blood into her red hair. I ran to her side, taking her head in my arms. Marie! Marie! I pressed my ear to her chest. Thank God, a heartbeat. Lightning forked to the ground in the distance, and the rumble of thunder rattled the world. Gravity was failing. Pebbles, shells, and bits of broken sky lifting from the beach and floating around us. There wasn't much time. I picked Marie up, cradling her in my arms, and started back. Even in the dying gravity, my legs trembled, strangely weak. I wasn't used to feeling pain here. The world quaked and burned and fell to pieces around us, but I barely noticed. I had her back, and we weren't going to die now. We reached the slipstream, and I took one last look back at paradise. Marie groaned, and her eyes fluttered open. Tears welled in my eyes as I watched her wake. She looked at me, as if stirring from a dream, but a moment later recognition dawned in her eyes. Jonathan, she said, smiling weakly. What took you so long? We're going home, Marie. She closed her eyes, and a tear slid down her cheek. I'd like that. Getting back was an eternity. Hundreds of steps felt like a hundred thousand. I clutched Marie to my chest, shielding her as best I could from the effects of lurch. The strain 
was enormous, but I forced my legs to move and my lungs to breathe. The slipstream crumbled around us, barely holding together. And then eternity ended, and we were in the study once more. I staggered as gravity reapplied itself, carefully lowering Marie to the floor. She took her sleeve, pristine even after all this time, and delicately wiped the blood from my nose. Irene had fallen asleep on the couch waiting for us, but now she woke, rubbing her eyes. Dad? She sat bolt upright, throwing aside the blanket. For a moment she seemed frozen, like if she moved the dream would dissolve around her. Then she broke free and ran full into our arms. No one said anything, but no one really needed to. After a time, I pulled myself away. Irene sobbed quietly in her mother's arms. Marie looked at me over her shoulder as reality continued to settle in. Her cheeks were streaked red as she smiled at me and mouthed the words, I love you. I turned to the mirror door. Hairline fractures riddled the surface of the photo like spider webbing. I had to break the infinite recursion to end the devastation inside. I gathered up the blanket and moved to throw it over the photo. Leave it, Marie said. The multiverse will be destroyed, I said. I know, Marie said, stepping over and resting a hand on my arm. But by now, everyone's been pulled out. The worlds are empty and should stay that way. She was right. Paradise was a wonderful dream, but we didn't know what to do with it. The pocket worlds had been special to a lot of people, but too many more had abused them. So why was it so hard to leave it behind? Marie took my face in her hands and looked me in the eyes. Jonathan, she said. Let it go. I looked into her eyes, a cascading spectrum of green, like emeralds in shifting light, and realized that nothing else mattered. I had Marie, I had Irene, and my family was whole again. I let the blanket drop and hugged my wife. I pressed my face into her shoulder and pushed my hands into her hair, and for the first time in two years, I cried. <laughs> I don't know if in 28 years anyone's had a heart attack up here. But there's always a first, I guess. A couple of years ago, I picked up a copy of The Name of the Wind uh, by another former winner, Pat Rothfuss. And in the intro to that book, I read about a little contest called Writers of the Future. Fast forward to this past January, and I got a call from Joni asking me if I was sitting down. <laughs> because not only did I win, but I won first place. And it was a surreal moment. One in which Joni patiently endured several minutes of, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow, wow. <laughs> and needless to say, I very quickly learned that there is nothing little about this contest. I want to be sure to thank Paul Peterson for your amazing illustration 
It showed me dimension to my story that I had only dreamed about beforehand. And I want to thank my fellow writers. This week wouldn't have been the same without each and every one of you. So to all you guys, keep pushing forward. And here's to the future. Thank you. There you go. Like you said, you know what I mean? To, to write a story just like David there and then to end up, you know, winning that whole award. Like you see, if you go over to the Ron L. Hubbard site and the Galaxy website, it is a big, massive thing, this. And I'm like, see, I don't write, you know what I mean? I kind of dabbled in it a while ago. But it's like one of the pinnacles of kind of the short story fiction there to kind of get this up, you know, and to, to be even ended into the win. It, it's the past history of the writers who have kind of been on board. And there's a kind of little bit of a sad end, not ending to it, but there's an introduction as well from KD Wentworth. And unfortunately, KD passed away, I think about a week ago there now as well. So that's, you know, terribly sad news in, in you know, for everyone involved with the writers of the future, you know, to have that kind of experienced writer up there, then unfortunately she's lost a, a battle for life. Our thoughts from Starship Sofa to go out to KD Wentworth's family and friends. So finally, we're going to play a little couple of minutes, 10 minutes of the beauty of our weapons. Everything is in here, so this is, I'll put a link on to this if you like this story and you fancy it. Link on there, go and get yourself a copy of this book. Anderson Dexter has a new lease on life. Things are finally looking up for the newly independent investigator when he picks up what seems like an ordinary case of vandalism. However, Dex is quickly on the trail of increasingly sinister attacks which jeopardize the very existence of Marionette City. Dex's society has entrusted its culture to this virtual world, leaving only bleak and inhumanly inefficient physical cities to house its otherwise online citizens. With Marionette City denied to them, Dex's world would be in ruins. The Beauty of Our Weapons Available at darusha.ca slash weapons Prologue Jeffy Wyatt was not in the mood to go to work. He was one of the lucky ones. He actually liked his job. Usually, he was perfectly happy to find a comfy spot on the couch in his tiny apartment, settle in, and unfocus his eyes. His implanted connection to the Everywhere Net allowed him online access anywhere, everywhere, without any additional hardware. He just thought about what he wanted to do, and he saw the screen overlaid on his vision. Jeffy's implants weren't unusual. He didn't know anyone without the implants. You couldn't get any job without them, and he wasn't sure how you'd even be able to find your way around. He'd only ever seen a paper map in a museum, and to be honest, it was a reproduction of a map in a virtual museum, but it was still the closest he'd ever come to seeing one. Jeffy went online and logged into M-City, and felt his virtual body materializing outside the door to his unimaginatively named shop, Discount Personalized Sex Bots. Jeffy designed individually tailored bot avatars for virtual sex, which were, frankly, cheap in all meanings of the word. But enough people liked them that he made enough money to be able to afford a private apartment, which meant that this was his full-time job. This was unusual, and Jeffy was mostly quite thankful for his good fortune. But this morning, he just didn't have any excitement for the sex bot business. He didn't want to deal with the clients, 
didn't want to talk up the various options available on the models, didn't want to code the product. He just wanted to sleep and try to forget. He'd known for weeks that his relationship with Vani wasn't going anywhere good, but he still wasn't ready for the drama that happened the previous night. Two hours of screaming was a record even for him, and he had terrible luck with breakups. His head still hurt in the morning, and work didn't feel like a great distraction. But when you're self-employed, the boss is a real ball-breaker, and there are no sick days, so Jeffy flopped on the couch and logged into M-City. What he saw when he rezzed into the virtual street where his shop was located was actually enough to make him forget about Vonnie completely. Too bad it was a million times worse than just a bad breakup. Why did this have to happen to me? Jeffy whined. Rene Biagini patted his friend on the hand and flicked a finger up to the waiter for another glass of synth wine. Can you tell me exactly what was done? Biagini asked, setting his system to record the conversation. He didn't really think he'd be able to find whoever vandalized his friend's store, but he'd promised to try, so he had to put a little effort in. Do you have a recording of the instantiation? Jeffy nodded. I record every workday. Prevents a lot of disputes over price quotes. Good, Rene said. Send me the vid. The wine arrived, and Rene felt a download drop into his system. You drink this, he said, handing Jeffy a large glass of red. Will I look at it, okay? Jeffy sniffled and nodded, sipping the wine. The vid showed a blurry image of Jeffy's storefront as it materialized in front of his vision. Rene had visited it more than a few times, and expected to see the familiar yellow and orange sign over the green portal door. Instead, there was a disturbing electrical buzzing sound, and the door was distorted and pixelated. It did not look safe to enter, but Jeffy must have gone in anyway, as the vid's point of view moved through the portal and into what should have been the small shop. From his previous visits, Rene recalled that Jeffy would have had two or three of his models out and available to interact with walk-in clientele. There was even a small cubicle where the clients could try before they'd buy. In the vid, the walls of the cubicle appeared to be slashed and the two models, it looked like Mintra and Ulu to Rene, were cut into pieces and lying on the floor. There was no blood or gore, but Rene couldn't shake the disturbing feeling that he was looking at a murder scene. He understood now why Jeffy was so upset. I'm sorry, he said, and reached out for his friend's hand again. That's just horrible. Jeffy nodded. I checked all the code, he said, putting down the half-empty wine glass. It's all still there, and the links are fine. I don't know how anyone cracked into my private disk space, but I reset all my passwords and tokens. I can fix the door in a few hours, and I'm pretty sure I can repair the boys and girls, too. He looked at Renee. It's just the sense of violation, you know? Of course, Renee said, not to mention the lost business. Jeffy shrugged. If I'm closed for a couple of days, I can manage. But I just don't feel safe anymore. If I lost the shop, I don't know what I'd do. I wouldn't be able to pay my rent, and I've been without a regular job for a year. I'd never get anything over level two now. I'd have to start over from scratch. Jeffy looked like he was going to start crying again, so Rene patted his friend on the shoulder. Don't think like that, he said. If whoever it was wanted to destroy your shop, they could have done a lot worse. It was probably just kids or some fucked up stimhead. You'll get over it, Jeffy. It was just pixels and code, after all. This time it's just pixels and code, Jeffy said. Next time it could be my whole livelihood. 
There won't be a next time, Renee said. But he didn't know how he could promise that. He ordered two more glasses of wine and turned on the Biagini charm. If he couldn't fix Jeffy's problems, the least he could do was help his friend forget them. Chapter One The sun beat down on their bronze bodies as Annabelle and Dex floated on the turquoise water. Look at that mountain, Annabelle said, turning on her side and pointing into the sky. A huge rock spire pierced the blue sky, its jagged edge looking sharp as a knife, groves of coconut trees fringing the base. Dex followed Annabelle's extended finger and smiled. Check this out, he said, grinning. He flipped over onto his stomach, then dove headfirst down into the cool, salty water. He was naked, as was Annabelle, and they didn't have any other gear with them either. They didn't need anything, since they had no need to breathe here in this shared dream world they'd bought the week before. Neither of them were spontaneous shoppers, but they'd been unable to stop talking about the dream holiday package they'd seen offered at Marcy's Memory Mart and finally decided to splurge. Dex swam downward effortlessly, looking back once to see Annabelle matching his pace. He swam a few strokes, then stopped and pointed over to his left. Annabelle swam up beside him and turned her head quizzically toward him. Through some mechanism Dex didn't understand, he heard her say, What? I don't see anything. The water in which they swam was crystal clear, but distance made objects more obscure. Just look, Dex replied somehow. Look for the white parts. Annabelle focused and made a gasping noise when she realized what she was looking at. It's a whale, she said, agog. Actually, it's two whales, Dex said, grinning, a humpback and her baby. Annabelle looked closer and saw the two giants slowly gliding down in front of them. Their head knobs were clearly visible, along with white streaks along their jaws and flukes. They arced their bodies, unbelievably slowly and gracefully, and almost effortlessly swam down into the depths, passing below Dex and Annabelle as they floated meters under the surface. They hung there in the warm water, watching the mother and child for what seemed like an hour before the giants swam away. That was amazing, Annabelle said, swimming a little closer to Dex and wrapping her arms and legs around him as they met. But I think it's time to get back to the real world. You're probably right, Dex said, and he held Annabelle closer. See you soon, kiddo, he said, and woke up. Dex was finally starting to get used to the quality of the sunlight in Nice. It had a bright yellow tint, compared to the greasy gray glow that had squirted through his windows back in America. In comparison, it had been a more absence of darkness than anything Dex would call real illumination. And here, the sunlight was actually hot, the climate appreciably changing from winter to summer and back again. This afternoon, still a cool spring day, the light that came through his window was strong enough to wake him on its own before his system got to the task. At least, it seemed to Dex that the Mediterranean sun was what pulled him away from his dream of the Pacific and into the bed he was sharing with Annabelle. He rolled over and looked at her face, unlined and beautiful, pale in the morning sunlight scrunched into her pillow. Her gold hair fanned out on the pillow, framing her face. He smiled, savoring the seconds he'd have to watch her sleep before her own enhanced mind woke her according to the instructions she'd have programmed the day before. He carefully moved his body slightly away from hers, knowing that it still took her a moment or two to remember that she wasn't alone. He heard her take a deep, inward breath, and smiled as her eyes fluttered open. She focused and saw him, 
flinching back into her side of the bed only slightly, then breaking into a smile. Good morning, Mr. Fish, she said, moving her body slightly closer to Dex and allowing him to pull her toward him. Good morning yourself, he said, lightly kissing the top of her head. That was a pretty nice little holiday we had there, wasn't it? Annabelle smiled. I can't believe that there is anywhere on earth that is really so beautiful, she said. And those whales. I had no idea either, Dex said. I wonder what it would have been like to really see that with real eyes. He felt Annabelle stiffen slightly, then relax into his arms again. There was a time, not long before, when he would have apologized for being insensitive, for reminding his lover and best friend that her preference for living in a simulation of the world was as opposite to Dex's own desire for physical presence as possible. But since he had moved from America to Europa and into a tiny, independent apartment only a short train ride from Annabelle's top-tier employee housing, they had begun to accept each other's differences a little more. Which was why Dex found himself luxuriating in Annabelle's expensive sheets at half-past two in the afternoon. There you go. What a monster of a show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm very pleased to kind of happily say be, you know, part of just to help out Galaxy Press and get this Ron L. Hubbard, you know, the, the volume 28 of Writers of the Future out and about and to be able to air these stories. Do you know what I mean? Like you say, get the win in one as well. Fantastic. Big thank you to the president of Galaxy Press, John Goodwin, who's for a while now, and I was trying to get an interview lined up with John as well and a couple of the writers, but it just... I've been on some terrible shifts lately at work. Night shifts are just hideous. And I don't know if I'm batting a ball and sometimes. And I just I, I couldn't work out. But John, I, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much for letting Starship so get these stories. So that is it. Two, three, five, put to bed. One mother of a show. Even as recording this, I don't know quite how big it is, but I just know she's a big girl. Like I say, we're off next week. Little break. But don't forget, support Starship Sova. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the way I keep getting these kind of stories and everything like that. Come over to the front of the website. There's a donation button there. Subscribe monthly. One off would be fantastic. Until I see you again. <laughs> Until next week. Until I see you again. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.